good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're not cheating on your wife if you eat my lemon square. Your lemon squares taste like ass. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking Do Your Lips Move When You Read? We're talking This is the Same B Group That Was At Your House The Night Sheila Got Bounced To The Hedges? And we're talking Perverts, Onanists, Calamities, And Other Riff Raff. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And we're talking, give me a glass of water and a couple lesbians. <laughs> it's like a mating call. <laughs> Very much so, everyone. Uh, we are discussing The Last of Sheila, a title that may not be super familiar to you unless you've been reading a bunch of Glass Onion reviews in which people are like, oh, it's The Last of Sheila, because people know hmm. about this movie now a little bit, but we're going to try to make it more well known. There we go. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Actually, Joe, before we even go into this, I'm just going to bring in our guest right away because I have to give this person credit for even putting this movie on our radar. So everyone, if you listen to our episode on Psycho 2 from a couple years ago, uh, you will know that this person recommended this film to me and Joe, and we finally got around to watching it and covering it today. So, uh... Everyone, he is an L.A.-based screenwriter, having written for shows like the Boulay Brothers' Dracula and films like the Freddie Prinze Jr. starring Christmas With You, which is currently streaming on Netflix. He is also the co-host of Midnight Mass, a podcast in which he and famed drag queen Peaches Christ worship their favorite cult movies. And you may remember him from our episodes on, again, Psycho 2 and Tenebrae. Please welcome back Michael Verratti. Well, hello, hello. Hello. I love that I get to come back to the show when either Anthony Perkins or Murder Most Foul in Europe is involved. (laughs) (laughs) We've typecast you. What can we say? I'll take it. If this is the typecasting that I get, this is pretty fab. (laughs) <laughs> oh, totally. I must say, too, So, because ever since you told us about this movie all those years ago, I was like, man, I, I gotta remember that. And Warner Archive released their Blu-ray of it, I want to say maybe even like the year you, you suggested this, and I snatched that shit up and watched it. Yeah, I have long loved this movie, and I, I am really thrilled to see, thanks to Ryan Johnson doing Knives Out and Glass Onion, but even with Kenneth Branagh's Hercule Poirot movies, mm-hmm. and, and some of these other films that are bringing back the ensemble mystery. History yes. because it is a subgenre that I have always loved. I mean, obviously, I'm a horror nerd and I live and breathe by fright films, but I'm a, I'm a big reader. And one of my favorite things to read is a good mystery. I love mm-hmm. Agatha Christie. I love I love a, a caper. And the 70s specifically had a lot of really, really great caper adaptations and i think the last of sheila as well as evil under the sun because they have very similar like rich people on vacation in exotic settings Mm -hmm. really really are of a certain time and to see ryan johnson reference it whether directly or indirectly because i haven't seen it yet with glass onion feels really great but i've loved this movie a long time i love that people are discovering it and the fact that it was written by anthony perkins and stephen sondheim just adds that excellent (laughs) (laughs) extra slice of queerness 
Just a touch. Just a touch. That's the selling point, right? Though I mean, like, no matter how good or bad people say this movie is, you tell someone, oh, yeah, it's this murder mystery co-written by Anthony Perkins and Stephen Sondheim. Um, that's an immediate selling point <laughs> for me, at least. I think for a lot of people, it's a, wait, what? Yeah. How have I never heard of this before? Well, okay. So, Joe, this was your first time watching this. And I'm curious, mm-hmm. before we really dive into it, what did you think of this movie? Uh, I really, really like it. I do find that the, it's not even exposition because it's the explanation, but it does go on maybe a little too long in that last act of the film. Like I paused it at one point to get up and get a glass of water. And I realized that I still had nearly 30 minutes and we were in the (laughs) middle of a villain monologue. And I was just like, how is this possible? What is left for this movie to cover? A lot. I mean, a lot. That's the thing, though, where it's like, okay, okay, look, this movie has, I've seen people call it complex, but I've also seen them call it convoluted. And to me, you know, Mm -hmm. complex is like the the positive connotation and convoluted is like, this doesn't make any sense. Okay, I watched the last 20 minutes of this movie twice today. So I watched the whole thing last night and then I watched the last 20 minutes twice today so I could really go over all of the puzzle pieces in this movie. And I really just think it's that Sondheim has weaved together such a complex mystery and he just wants to show you, hey, I did my fucking homework and here's all the evidence I includes I left for you in this movie. Well, I think the other thing that makes this stand out if you think of a sherlock holmes story or a a Mm -hmm. hercule poirot story there's sort of the construct of here are the suspects here's what happened and here's the detective kind of giving the speech and then you isolate the killer the killer gets captured end of story Mm -hmm. on to next mystery right what i think makes this so very unique and so very sondheim is the mystery in some ways is very secondary to how the people involved react to it. Because mm-hmm, I think right. that the whole point of this film is not really the murder, but it's the folks involved and just sort of their own machinations therein, you know? Which, by the way, I think that's the thing that Ryan Johnson takes the most from this film and puts yes. in something like Knives Out and Glass Onion. And it's even, I mean, Joe laughed at me because I told him, I was like, you know, it's... it. There's a similarity in both in, in, between this and Glass Onion in the sense that the murder in question like doesn't really take place until about an hour into the film, <laughs> despite the fact that Sheila does get killed, yes, in the first 30 seconds of this movie. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's kind of a thing where it's like, oh, yeah, it takes forever to get to the actual murder in question in this movie. But it's also because we think that we're solving the first murder. Right. Right. So I, I love that it doesn't follow the conventional, I don't know, we call them rules of a whodunit, because I think when people think of a whodunit, they think of something like like an Agatha Christie novel or adaptation or Clue, where it's like, hey, someone gets killed in the first act, and we spend the rest of the movie figuring out, and then we solve it at the end. Right. Well, I almost feel that that's what we've come to think of a whodunit, right? Mm-hmm. Like, for a lot of us, specifically horror fans, our whodunits were mostly slasher films where we spend the entire runtime trying right. to guess the killer's identity as people get knocked off. So it becomes very much, and then there were none. Whereas here, I'm almost concerned that people might watch this and think that it's kind of boring because there aren't a ton of crimes because that's not what the film is interested in doing, right? It's like, here's a group of shady motherfuckers just delight in their presence and how terrible they all are that's where the the film's appeal lies yeah it's bitchy let's let's be honest let's let's just call it what it is the point of this movie and i think the queer appeal is that it's got kitsch appeal you have 
Raquel Welch and Diane Cannon and, uh, you know, even some of the men serving mm-hmm. flamboyance for mm-hmm. days. Yes. And that's that's it. You you like this movie not because it's uh, structured like a slasher or a giallo, mm-hmm. because, no, there's no high body count, but the body count is the barbs that it's are like cutting each other up yeah. yeah yeah i mean i think that this is more like if you're expecting a monster no but if you want like anti-mame it's there <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's very much a movie. you need to listen to the dialogue in this movie and i will actually say so this is the third time i have seen this subtitles help oh my god i couldn't even imagine watching this in a theater in 1973 and trying to piece together the mystery. Like I joked that the entire last act is just explanation, but it is that mixture of complex and convoluted and not being able to catch the jokes and all of the double entendres and all of the insults and stuff like this feels like a movie that is perfect for an age where we can pause, we can rewind, we can put on captions to really appreciate how it's been put together. Mm-hmm. Joe, all right, so before, I want to go into the production, but before we go into that, um, you mentioned when you first watched this uh, to me, you said this could not get made today. And I think no. I know the answer <laughs> why, but I'm curious, what made you say that? Because <laughs> this is a movie filled with deplorable people, none of whom get their comeuppance. <laughs> Uh, the, the the most notable of which is a child molester who um, technically wins the movie. <laughs> yeah. And like we have an evil homosexual who's not that evil and who's also questionably homosexual. Wait, 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 wait. He's not that evil. He literally is the murderer of the movie. <laughs> yeah, but you kind of get the impression that like, again, because we don't really care about the murder, it doesn't really matter that Tom is a killer because we're like, well, Clinton seemed like a bit of a piece of shit anyway. But what is interesting about this is that what we think we know may not actually be true. So true. The character in question that is uh, the alleged child molester based on the clues left by the deceased mm-hmm. and the alleged homosexual left based on the clues left by the deceased. If you really like listen to how it like goes back and forth at the end, it may not be that either of those people are the things of which they have been alleged. Yep. The the only thing that gives me pause about that, and I'm sorry, I know we're already talking about the ending here, but it's like we know that the Philip, the James Mason character, tried to kill James Coburn's character with the propellers because he mm-hmm. didn't want his secret getting out. Now, you could say, well, was it that secret particularly, or was it just like he knew there was a secret and he didn't want whatever secret it was getting out? Fair. Yeah, it's the tricky thing with the way that the cards are distributed, and there's there's a couple of lines of dialogue at about the midway point when everybody literally puts the cards on the table and people say oh well does only one card apply to each person and people do protest like we discover that philip is both a child molester but is also someone who has been to prison well and no one seems to care that he's a child molester. oh my god no one cares about any of this but i feel like that's the joke that anthony yes. perkins and stephen sondheim are making that's the whole point of this movie i mean mm-hmm. of course that's the, the thing that when we unpack the ending we really dig into and, and it gets to what i was saying about it, the murders are secondary to oh yes the commentary here but I agree with Joe that this couldn't be made today for the reason that we have entered this space where audiences demand punishment. Well, <laughs> not just punishment, but black or white. You know, oh, there, yeah. there, mm. there's no sort of gray area in the idea that a story cannot have a character that is not a virtuous lead. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we, we in, in the post-internet discussion era seem to not 
want characters who maybe are problematic. And I no. understand the reasons for that, but I think here, Stephen Sondheim and Anthony Perkins lay out what is a problematic scenario mm-hmm. populated with problematic people and say, <laughs> well, guess who would be in a problematic scenario? Problematic people. And yeah, when right. problematic scenarios are solved by problematic people, some of the problematic people are going to walk away from it because they solved their own problem, right, right. or wrong. And they're also rich. Like, let's yeah. not forget that these are privileged people who are going to get away with all the worst shit. Because guess what, people? Newsflash. That's what happens in real life. Well, and heads up, that's also kind of what happens in Glass Onion, with the exception of two specific people in that movie. <laughs> mm. No spoilers. Save that for the Patreon. Yes. Um, oh, yeah. Sorry. Go listen to our Patreon episode on Glass Onion, by the way. Um, I, I, I do think you could make this today, but I think it would have to be a pitch black, like, satire. Like, I, And I do think that that is what this is, but it's not the aesthetic that we're used to that when, when it comes to something like that. So I think it would have to be a, a bit more of a heightened reality than what is presented as reality in this movie yeah because people according to what you're saying michael and i agree with you i think people could easily misconstrue like oh well the film isn't coming down hard enough on these people it's not condemning them it's not punishing them and therefore they would misinterpret that oh no the movie is definitely doing that it's just not doing it in an over-the-top fashion right it's that place where i think that we have this disconnect where we forget that storytelling does not necessarily mean endorsement. Yeah. Oh my God. Thank you for saying it. (laughs) And so I don't think that any of the people who populate the boat that we are on for most of the last of Sheila are good Mm -hmm. people. None of them are people that I would want to particularly spend time with, Mm -hmm. but in terms of a sociological, you know, observation or, (laughs) or a, a delicious slice of, bitchiness for you know the two-hour runtime you're watching what is basically terrible people in a terrible situation who have done terrible things and of course you can't look away because that's train wreck 101 exactly (laughs) it's what makes this movie worth watching like if you can't get on board with what well i mean if you can't get on board with what any movie is doing then you're not going to have a good time but specifically with this one like if you're looking for a character to root for this probably isn't a film for you. I think the most like likable person in this movie is probably Ian McShane's character, but only because we don't know what. He, well, I know it because all he all he did, quote unquote, was fight someone to get thrown in prison. Mm-hmm. <laughs> By the way, uh, as someone who's never like particularly like thought of Ian McShane in a sexual way, um, that changed when I saw this movie. <laughs> it's the lack of facial hair. It makes him look so young. So cute. <sighs> I always forget it's him. I'm going to be honest. I've seen this movie many times and I'm used to him sort of being the craggy post Deadwood, Mm -hmm. like more matured version of Ian McShane. Even, even, um, uh, there's a, uh, a movie that he did that isn't Agatha Christie, uh, adaptation that he stars in with uh, Faye Dunaway called Ordeal by Innocence. And he's already started to look more like the Ian McShane that we know, um, I forget that he's this sort of like youthful nigh like twink in this film. Mm-hmm. One Very day he t- was just left out in the sun and he got craggy. And then <laughs> that's his whole persona from then on. He's on the, off the coast of France. This movie did it this to him. This was he, it. This movie broke the- him. <laughs> 
Okay. Well, so let's go into how this movie came to be because it actually, I mean, in, 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 in case you haven't like done any research on this, it is based on a lot of real life shit. That, I mean, sorry, inspired by a lot of real life shit that Sondheim and Perkins would do. <laughs> oh my God. You make it sound so insidious. It's based on real life Hollywood people, not Stephen Sondheim and Anthony Perkins murdering people on the French Riviera. Though, 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 to be fair, um, <laughs> <laughs> they did they, murder someone. <laughs> they, they murdered people, but not for real. So part of the inspiration for this is that Anthony Perkins and Stephen Sondheim uh, would host these very, very elaborately scripted murder mystery parties for their famous friends like Lee Remnick and, and some of these folks. And they would send them around New York City to solve the crime. And and they delighted in this. And I think at some point they said, well, what if we did that? But movie. Right. And I will say it was actually director Herbert Ross's idea for them to do the movie and he helped produce it. Nice. Yeah. So as we've already said, The Last of Sheila, co-written by two queer men, Anthony Perkins and Stephen Sondheim. And well, many of our listeners probably are already familiar with Perkins. And if you're not, please go watch any of the four Psycho films. They may not be as familiar with Stephen Sondheim. Um, I know that I'm a musical theater nut, but I know that not a lot of our listeners are. So um, just a quick primer on him. So if you don't know who Sondheim is, uh, God rest his soul. He did die last November. One of the mo- he's known as one of the most important figures in 20th century musical theater. Um, he's credited for having reinvented the American musical with shows that tackle unexpected themes that range far beyond the genre's traditional subjects with music and lyrics of unprecedented complexity and sophistication. And I'm going to emphasize that because if y'all haven't heard any of his lyrics, you should go listen to that right now. Uh, any sample you can find of Sondheim's famous lyrics. Uh, but if you've seen like Sweeney Todd or Into the Woods, you're kind of on the right path there. Mm-hmm. Um, he did get his start being mentored by Oscar Hammerstein II, uh, of course, of Rodgers and Hammerstein fame. Uh, he began his career by writing lyrics for West Side Story and Gypsy in the late 50s. And then he transitioned into writing both music and, and lyrics for the theater. And so between 1962 and 1987, he wrote music and lyrics for shows like A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, Company, Follies, A Little Night Music, Sweeney Todd, Merrily We Roll Along, Sunday in the Park with George, and Into the Woods. So in his more than 60-year career, he has won shells of awards for his musicals, including eight Tony Awards, which included a Lifetime Achievement Tony in 2008, an Academy Award, eight Grammy Awards, a Laurence Olivier Award, a Pulitzer Prize, a Kennedy Center Honor, and a Presidential Medal of Freedom. So basically, he went unrecognized in his lifetime, is what you're saying. <laughs> in case you were on Twitter, like, why is everyone going crazy for this Stephen Sondheim person being dead? Um, that's a big reason why. He's um, only one of the most important musical theater people ever. Well, and I think it's important to note that one of the things that makes him so great beyond his ability to write amazing music and his lyrical complexity is that he actually brought layers and complexity to the storytelling that he did for the stage. Mm -hmm. I think when people who don't like musicals or don't like musical theater put that onus on it, there's sort of this old world disdain where it's sort of a frivolous activity where it's like song and dance and and light and fluffy, which of course we know is not true or accurate. Right. But in the case of Stephen Sondheim, he brought song to characters who had layers and who were maybe problematic or who had morally gray circumstances. Sweeney Todd is a murderer who Mm -hmm. over the course of his murdering maybe is or is not justified based on knowledge that he has 
from unreliable narration. Sounds familiar. Yes. <laughs> Into the Woods takes what we know about fairy tale characters and in the first act tells you the story you know and in the second act shows how problematic it would be if people lived like this and the complexity of what happens if you live with the simplicity of a fairy tale life. And the thing is this because here's the thing like I love Into the Woods and I love Sweeney Todd however the style of music used in both of those musicals are not it's not something that I, I would say is easily accessible for someone who is not a fan of musicals because it really is dependent on you listening to and understanding the lyrics that are being sung. Well, it's operatic. It's not mm -hmm. verse, chorus, verse, chorus. There right. is there is story in the music itself mm -hmm. and it's not easy. I think any, any musical theater actor who performs Sondheim will tell you that it is a workout of both, uh, <laughs> of, of both your skills and your emotions. He, he was not easy on the people who performed his music because to him, the music is the ultimate vehicle. And I think that Follies is a, is a great example as well of a group of performers who convene at a theater years later after their glory days. And they reminisce about what happens when time passes you by and you get older and the messiness of youth and the messiness of the of, of interrelationships and what happens when you look back on it. That's not the kind of thing that when you're going to a Broadway show with your grandma who just yes. wants to see like, you know, <laughs> song and dance and song and dance that they necessarily are, are prepared for or thinking about when you think of the great American songbook or Broadway. Mm -hmm. But that's what he brought to the stage. The fact that people are complicated and what made it so interesting is he says people are complicated, so too shall be the music by which they present their souls. And I think that's what's interesting about Sondheim. So what you're saying is jukebox musicals are like a plague on... <laughs> They're on, on a Broadway. little soulless at times. <laughs> I mean, I I have actually said on other podcasts that I'm not a big fan of jukebox musicals. So if that's if that's the takeaway and people want to write uh, you know angry letters to me, that's fine. There are some <laughs> I enjoy, but you just will have to guess what they are. I, I mean, I, I have to just like the music that's the jukebox. Like, again, I like ABBA, so I enjoy Mamma Mia. I don't care for um uh whatever the, the 80s music that's in rock of ages so i don't care for rock of ages but it's more i don't mean this as a, as a negative but it's just it's simpler than what something like sondheim brings to the stage well it's a member berry from south park isn't it yeah right? like <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's exactly it i mean the other lead that we're bearing is that sondheim as you said, Michael, did problematic characters. He also did a lot of very queer shit. Yes. So he was also a person whose knowledge spanned a substantial number of subjects, and he was known to draw on complex bodies of knowledge to solve specific problems. And so on top of all this musical shit <laughs> that he's done, um, he also devised crossword puzzles, um, really tricky crossword puzzles for the New York for New York magazine um, the, when it debuted in 1968. So mysteries had long intrigued him and throughout his career he compared lyric writing to puzzle solving and the form appeals to his methodical and the form appealed to his methodical nature um he even went as far as to say to me the connection between puzzles and detective stories is all about order and solution the nice thing about them is that there's a solution and all's right with the world as opposed to life and so it was this love of games that helped make the last of sheila a reality but before we get there, we have to go back into what Michael was talking about earlier with the games he and Perkins would put on for their friends. 
So before they were co-writers, uh, yeah, they staged elaborate, immersive events for friends in the 1960s. For example, the climax of One Hunt was staged in the lobby of a seedy flop house, where participants heard a skipping LP record endlessly repeating the first line of the Harold Arlen and Johnny Mercer standard, One for My Baby. And the lyric was, it's quarter to three, it's quarter to three. The winning team eventually recognized the clue, being 245, and immediately headed to room 245 of the hotel, where bottles of champagne awaited them. <laughs> Hmm, sounds kind of like a clue in the movie. Very much so. Use your greatest hits. This is the one Michael was talking <laughs> about, though. So the, he, they got teams to ride around New York City in limousines, and the solution to each puzzle um, was pointing the way to the next. And at one stop on the journey, an older white-haired woman, who was played by Anthony Perkins' mother, served chocolate cake to her visitors. When the team members put the slices back together, the clue to their next destination was written in the frosting. And so, uh, Michael, you said that Lee Rimmick was one of their friends, and she was. So her team <laughs> actually ate their cake and lost the game that time. <laughs> You know what? Lee's my people. Like, come on. <laughs> Don't give me a piece of cake and tell me not to eat it to look for the clue in the frosting. Fuck you. I'm I eating know. the cake. But I have to say, I love the idea that, like, Anthony Perkins' mom was part of this. But then there's a part of me that it's also was like, was it really his mom or was it right. him dressed as his mom? Uh, I mean, at this point, he had a lot of experience. <laughs> I mean, we do get some cross-dressing in this movie, too, from uh, James Coburn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> his, his eye makeup left a bit to be desired, but we can Ooh, talk boy. about Boy, was he applying it in the dark in that, like, confessional booth? So, did John know he was supposed to be dressed up as uh, Raquel Welch's character? Yeah, they say it. Oh, God, I, I've missed that all three times I've seen this movie. I thought he was just wearing drag. <laughs> and you know who probably was not thrilled with that? Raquel Welch. Oh, well, well, well I, I have a few things to say about her. <laughs> <laughs> I will say, though, so I watched the commentary for this, and the commentary has uh, Richard Benjamin and Diane Cannon, and Raquel Welch, except it's very, very, very clear that Raquel Welch is not present with the other two and that they recorded her separately and spliced in her very minimal comments uh, throughout uh, Richard's and Diane's commentary. Boo. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so at this New York cake thing, uh, Herbert Ross was also one of the team members. And so... He won, actually, and appreciated uh, the showmanship involved. He suggested that Sondheim write a murder mystery for him to direct. And so Sondheim agreed, bringing in Perkins to add Hollywood authenticity. But um, I do want to point out Ross, by the way. Um, he would go on to direct such classics as Footloose and Steel Magnolias, um, one of my favorite films of all time. I knew the name sounded familiar. Uh, right? Because he didn't, hadn't really done much before this because, and I'm assuming this is how Sondheim knew him, Herbert Ross was known on Broadway because he spent most of the 50s and 60s as a choreographer, even winning a Tony for Best Choreography in 1964 for the musical Anyone Can Whistle. Ah, Yes. That famous show. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no. So he made the film for his own production company with it being distributed by Warner Brothers. And for the specific plot idea for the film, so Sondheim drew inspiration from one specific game that he and Perkins put on. And it was one where they gathered four couples and each person was told to think of a way to kill one of the others over the weekend that they would all be spending together in the country, which... That sounds like a recipe for disaster, but okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Especially if you invite certain couples who, like, have beef with the others. <laughs> <laughs> they then passed out envelopes, and inside one was an X. Uh, that, was, that person was the only one who was to carry out his or her plan. And the others were to spend the time avoiding being murdered by whoever got the X. So, um, you know, some bodies, bodies, bodies in there for you. There we go. 
Now, if you've seen the film, you'll understand how complex, and again, some might say convoluted, The Last of Sheila is. The script constructs a web of clues and misdirection so dense that even Anthony Perkins confessed, and I quote, There were parts of the plot I was hoping Sondheim would never quiz me on. The murders <laughs> and their motives are explicated in the last 20 minutes of the film via flashbacks, and Sondheim knew a detective walking the audience through the solution wouldn't make a satisfying third act. So he went on to say, When I was plotting it, I thought I've got to make it quote cinematic i can't i have to be breaking something or stabbing or shooting each or having people shoot each other even though it may be seen through a rearview mirror so he was just more focused on again like the the, the journey there well i guess also making sure that that ending had a kind of like bombacity to it right like michael when you were mentioning uh agatha christie i was thinking of these recent hercule poirot films that we've been getting and like the climax of those movies are often very muted because it's mostly just poirot being like and then you did this and we maybe get a little bit of a flashback but they're often very quickly cut whereas this film seems to say let's get rid of that exposition kind of explanation piece and let's let the audience actually see it almost in full true but you know what's interesting is that when you think about poirot it's just it, it's of the time right of course mm -hmm. he stands there and talks because yeah. it came from the medium of of novel that she wrote and so she let the uh you know the reader kind of fill in with their imagination and then you know the devotees of Christie when translating that to screen didn't want to mess with it. Mm -hmm. But much like The Last of Sheila, and here we go, these are spoiler alerts for books that are almost a century old now. So <laughs> if you're going to be mad about it. Oh, dear. But the convoluted reveal of Death on the Nile, for example, is... Oh, boy bananas the fact that someone appears to be dead but they're not actually dead and then someone came in while the record was playing and blah 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 blah, blah. it's insane same with murder on the orient express who did it she did it he did it no we all did it we and here's did why it. <laughs> and it's it, it's actually nuts that even though christy who is quite clever at how she constructed things and i think perkins is admitting this as well with with the last of sheila and his confession about sondheim quizzing him is that the reality is we want to be swept up in the fantasy of these complex murder plots, but mm -hmm. most of the time they don't actually hold up to scrutiny. No. Agatha Christie has had admitted that she would just write to the end of the book and say, this person is the killer. And then in her second pass, she would just go back through and kind of like judge <laughs> parts of it to make it work. But, you know, she's only human. So sometimes you're going to be like, wait, what? And like Sondheim was definitely operating on like a next level. It's clear on any review of any of his work that he looked at things in a different way. But I don't know that the the whole of the last of sheila really 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 would stand up to scrutiny and i don't know that it matters i i'm gonna i just i actually think it does and may, maybe it's because i've seen it a couple times again but it's like watching it i'm like oh it is kind of obvious that tom is the killer in this movie but i don't remember if i thought that the first time that i watched it J joe help me out here did you were you kind of pinpointed on tom at all during this movie um, I, I did, but not too much earlier. I figured it was either him or Philip. So when they actually both revealed that they wanted to kill Clinton, I was like, okay, well, you know, I think some of that groundwork has been laid there. But I never imagined that Lee was involved in it. But I, I think the broad strokes make sense. I think it's like when you get to the minutiae that sometimes it's like, wait, 
yeah like when we get down to like the cigarette and the bottle and the ice pick and that kind of stuff it's like it all mostly holds up but i yeah it's the kind of thing where you wonder if i really watched it and paused it to try to keep track of every single one of these clues would it work but i also think again that's maybe missing most of the The point point of the film yeah like like, why would you the whole point is you want to have a glass of wine with the people on this boat and then mm-hmm. get the fuck off the boat because they're not nice people. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, before we get into the casting, just a fun fact, a uh, queer director who we actually just talked about a few weeks ago, uh, Joel Schumacher, was the film's mm-hmm. costume designer on this film. Uh, he actually wouldn't go on to direct his first film until 1981, The Incredible Shrinking Woman. Wow. Okay. Starring Lily Tomlin. Yes, there starring Lily Tomlin. Uh, queer well, excellence. Uh, I saw when I was a kid, which is like, I, what was the song she sings? Uh, I wish I was a bar of soap, a little bar of soap or something. I haven't seen that movie in years, but I might be motivated to rewatch it based oh on this God. conversation. The, 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 the climax of the movie is basically when she shrinks to nothingness. And when she's shrinking to nothingness and like she's like basically telling her children, I'm sorry, I'm about to die. She sings in this lullaby that she always sang them. And it's something like, I wish I was a little bar of soap. It makes no fucking sense. But for some reason, <laughs> that is the part of that movie that sticks out to me. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like kinder trauma, but sure. Yeah, it's, I mean, it was on the Disney Channel, so. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, with the casting, uh, yes, as we've kind of alluded to, a lot of the people in this movie are based on or inspired by real life uh, people. Uh, Raquel Welch plays movie starlet Alice and Ian McShane, her manager husband, Anthony. Welch claimed that the two were based on Anne Margaret and her husband, Roger Smith, but I think... Uh, from what I can tell, Sondheim tricked her or just flat out lied to her. Um, he later said the part was actually based on Welch herself and her one-time husband, Patrick Curtis. I kind of love that. Yeah. James Mason. So this is the child molester Philip, uh, washed up film director, who was reportedly based on a composite of two real-life directors. And I don't know who those directors are, and I'm wondering if that's because one of these rumors is true. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then finally, so again, the big one here, though, is Diane Cannon's character, Christine. So she is based on talent agent Sue Mingers. And Ross originally offered the role to Mingers herself, but she turned it down, claiming too many of her clients were out of work. And so he pit- she pitched her client, Diane Cannon. Do y'all know Diane Cannon from anything? Like, is there a specific role that you're like, oh, that's what I know her from? I mean, she was just sort of like one of those staples of the era. Like when I think of Diane, it's, it's interesting because like I don't immediately think to myself, oh, yeah, the Diane the Diane canon oeuvre Mm -hmm. but she was like so famous in the in the 70s you know i think i don't know she was in the last oh i guess bob carroll ted and alice would be the big one oh yes Mm, see okay okay, for me it's ally mcbeal (laughs) (laughs) this is trey showing his age again (laughs) i know i know i know i know no she she played judge whipper cone who was in like a bunch of seasons of that show she was like you know that in the practice always had like recurring guest judges she was Mm -hmm. always on that show what's interesting though is like a decade after the last of sheila almost i think a decade she did death trap which is another ensemble murder mystery Mm -hmm. oh there we go is that one any good uh, I love that one. I mean, okay. you know, in a couple years, if you want to do that, I'll come back. <laughs> well, I, that, we should do that. I really want to do Murder by Death uh, because I think that would be a really fun one too, Joe. But, uh, you know, spoiler alert, some of the uh, some of the jokes do not hold up to screen. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, that's what makes it so fun. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, Murder by Death has Truman Capote in it. So, you know. True. Right. There you go. Funny thing about Mindrew. So she was like, I mean... Uh, 
I'd never really heard of her before this movie, but she is she was a big, big, big deal in Hollywood to the point where um, if we have any viewers of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel out there, Alex Borstein's character is inspired by her. Hmm. And in 2013, Penny Dreadful creator and they slash them writer director John Logan wrote a one woman play called I'll Eat You Last, a chat with Sue Mengers, and it starred Bette Midler as the titular Sue Mengers. And of course, the tie is into this movie because Bette Midler's song Friends plays over the end credits of The Last of Sheila. You know what's interesting, though, is this is kind of one of those cases where if the myth is larger or like if the myth is better than the truth, print the myth, right? And so Mm -hmm. for all of these years, the idea that Christine, the Diane Cannon character, was based on Mengers has persisted because I think it's 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 cool. It's good. It kind of goes in line with Sondheim and Perkins were trying to do by basing all the characters on real people. And right. they, they they probably did. But the, the portion of the myth being that they asked her to play the part herself uh, ha- was disputed in 2020 here in Los Angeles at the American Cinematheque. Uh, Richard Benjamin and Diane Cannon came uh, to a screening of The Last of Sheila and someone asked the question and she said that, yes, Menger's was the inspiration for the role, but had never been considered to play it because by Menger's mm. own com- confession, she was not an actor. So she didn't right. want to do it and was just like, just cast Diane Cannon. <laughs> 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 Who honestly does a fantastic job because Christine, for me, is the standout of this ensemble. Mm. Oh, she's electric in this movie. Honestly, the the, 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 poor, the person I feel the worst for is the actress that plays Lee, Joan Hackett. She, she, I think she's really well in the role, but it's not a showy role, unfortunately. No. no, but she's like the straight person, for lack yep. of a better term. Like, it's that thing that kind of sucks when you are in a movie of dynamic characters. Someone has to sort of be mm-hmm. the the fulcrum for the audience to be like, look how bizarre everyone else is. And, yeah. and she's our entry point. <laughs> and I think that's true. Well, um, yeah, so they shot this movie on location in the south of France. This is very much an Ocean's 12 situation where they were all on vacation. Although it wasn't an easy shoot. Um, the... Uh, first cameraman was fired. The yacht, the first yacht sank. They had to get it replaced. <laughs> but they were all in France having a fun time. I mean, they almost nearly got blown up, not because the ship went on fire, but also because uh, it was targeted by terrorists. Yeah, that, that 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 too. But they were still on a yacht off the coast of France. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I will say though that on the commentary, Richard Benjamin's like, I really hate it when actors complain about the business because look at how hard we had it. Like, oh no, we had to be on a boat on the ocean and then go to <laughs> France and eat good food. <laughs> right. Honestly, the dream. Right. Right. <laughs> So the film opens on June 14th, 1973. It is a full two hours long. We've got a budget of about $2 million. This film does not have a page on Box Office Mojo, but for what I can tell, it made about $2.2 million. So I I don't think this was a success, which is why it probably hasn't really become well-known up until recently. But um, critical reception was mostly positive. We've got an 88% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 6.8 out of 10. Letterboxd users have given it a 7.4 out of 10. It's been reviewed well today, and filmmakers like Edgar Wright and Larry Karajewski have also praised it, uh, doing special introductions for the film on Turner Classic Movies and Trailers from Hell. And, as I have already said, Ryan Johnson cited this specific film as an inspiration for both Knives Out and its sequel, Glass Onion. 
there were talks in 2012 to remake it. Um, Joe Silver, by the way, of Dark Castle fame, was, hmm. I'm sorry, Dark Castle, among other things, right. was going to do it. But it hasn't happened. So I don't know what happened with that. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if this kind of reinvigoration of whodunit mysteries translates into something more regular or if it'll just be like, well, I guess if Ryan Johnson or Kenneth Branagh wants to make one every couple of years, like we know for <laughs> sure we're going to get a third Poirot film. So we'll see. Yeah, I don't know how the last of sheila gets remade unless it is once again a period piece you know i think that modern technology with this movie wouldn't work everybody's just on their phone solving the first clue oh i got it i love a good period piece but I mean, the, the thing is this though i think it's Im- what i like about this movie and knives out and glass onion is that they are original murder mysteries so it's like they have more free reign to kind of play with our expectations whereas and i i I know Joe disagrees with me, but I, I enjoy the Kenneth Branagh's adaptations. Of, uh... Oh, sorry. I fell asleep. What were you talking about? <laughs> I I think I, I actually prefer Orient Express, but I think they're fine. Um, I, I don't dislike them, but they're they also fine. feel a bit soulless to me by the numbers. Or he's just kind of like, yep, this is what we got to do. I'll make it look pretty ish. So I, I, I hope we get more original murder mysteries. Yeah. When one of the things that I think makes The Last of Sheila stand out is... When you look at something like the Poirot movies, you have Poirot. This is a murder mystery without an operative detective. Yes, Mm -hmm. we have someone who does sleuthing at this in this, but Mm -hmm. the reality is, is the person who does the sleuthing is also an unreliable narrator. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Both of them are, in fact, right? Yeah, exactly. Because Philip would have been a murder if his propeller trick had worked. Yeah, I would say the other feather in this movie's cap is the fact that it does not give a backstory to anyone's mustache. (laughs) (laughs) if you want to hear me tell that joke again go and listen to our death on the nile episode on patreon oh god i forgot they do that in death on the nile oh god Mm -hmm. see that movie though i think is good except i I, this is just part of the original story but that ending is so the reveal of the murderers is so underwhelming in that movie okay yeah i I have to tell you a brief aside about death on the nile that i think would be of interest to horror queers listeners uh, okay. pre-pandemic they did a screening of death on the nile the the older one uh, oh with, yeah with mm-hmm. peter ustinov that uh was the 40th anniversary they did a screening of it here in los angeles and An- angela lansbury <gasps> came uh, and she sat in the audience and watched the film with us and nice. it was i think the first time she had sat and watched the movie since the premiere and afterwards she went up and did a Q&A with this guy who came from the AFI and he had this like legal yellow pad full of his questions. <laughs> and Angela Lansbury was talking about Betty Davis and she starts kind of like getting slightly dishy about <gasps> Betty Davis being kind of contentious on the set. But being a classy <laughs> dame as she was, she co- kind of let it trail off. But it was clear that if he had followed, she set, oh, him, no. she set him up. So he could then ask the question and then she would have been, you know, without blame. And he didn't take the bait, did he? No, it's because he had his list of questions. So oh, he, my. So he looked at the he looked at the sheet and was like, yes. And in 19, whatever, you worked with Danny Kay. And you can feel the audience like collectively be like, no, fuck Danny Kay. Get back, to, get back to Betty Davis. Ugh. So that's my death on the Nile side story, because I knew that listeners here would one love an Angela Lansbury story, but also an Angela Lansbury almost dishing on Betty Davis and how this room of of mystery enthusiasts and gays were just like, come on. Why wasn't Angela Lansbury a character in Few? Did they even make it to that far into the 70s when they were filming that? (laughs) 
Um, also, listeners, if you want to see Angela Lansbury get shot point blank in the face, um, go watch that original Death on the Nile. <laughs> the selling feature, apparently. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it was for me when I was like, what? That happens? And it does. Honestly, that cast is flawless, though. Angela Lansbury, Betty Davis, Peter Ustinov, Olivia Hussey. Come on. Yeah. Well, Joe, that's the thing, though. So they turn the Angela Lansbury character into the Sophie Okonedo character in the remake and therefore mm. make her Poirot's, oh my God, Poirot, Poirot's, like, lover of sorts. Right. But one thing I will give Brana credit for, knowing his audience and knowing that gays love mysteries, he gave mm-hmm. us French and Saunders united again. For 2.5 seconds. Also, though, <laughs> yeah. Okonedo is the best part of that movie. So. Oh, by far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not the fucking mustache is what I'm saying. Yes. <laughs> but what happens in The Last of Sheila, Joe? All right. Uh, we open with Sheila Green, who is played ever so briefly by Yvonne Romaine. She leaves a party. She's struck. She's killed by a car in a hit and run. And that's what happens when you walk in, Bever- in Bel Air. <laughs> <laughs> wow, Michael. <laughs> blaming the victim we need the la insider knowledge actually (laughs) no i mean like i love that opening but when i see where she's walking i'm like there's no sidewalks there no people in la are intense drivers people here don't walk as a matter of rule it's like everything about it is 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 sort of okay well i'm sad i'm sad for sheila but girl what are you doing in the middle of the road if you are a resident of the city of los angeles First off, Bel Air's in the hills, too. There's, like, nowhere to go if you're walking. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't because I would get hit by a car. It's sort of like the foregone conclusion of Sheila's life that she was walking <laughs> in Bel Air. And thus. A mess. She had to die. Based on this movie and all we see of her, she died as she lived, walking mm-hmm. in the street. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> so we jump ahead one year. And as the credits roll, we're moving past this series of games. And we realize that this is the game's room of producer Clinton Green, who is played by James Coburn. And he is typing up party invitations to invite a group of people to a one week vacation aboard his luxury yacht in the south of France. It's all very exciting. Mm -hmm. So we basically get this very quick introduction to all of these main characters. Uh, They include writer Tom, who's played by Richard Benjamin, looking every bit the man of Falcon Video's dreams in the 1980s. Oh my God. Honestly, I was Wait, like, Joe, have I seen him in porn? Joe, what what's Falcon Video? Could you explain that to me? <laughs> so Falcon Video is an adult American entertainment company featuring many penises going into many butts. I will say, so I'm not really a mustache person. Um, I find this man incredibly attractive. Oh, he's very hot. Yes. <laughs> It's funny because I spent a bunch of time being like, these costumes are very sexy. Like, all of the men look really good. End credits come up. Oh, hello, Joel Schumacher. Yes, this all makes sense now. Doing the most for all of us, honestly. All Thank God. Us. Bless him. Bless An immediate him. clue. Lee is drinking ginger ale, not alcohol yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so his wife, Lee, as you mentioned, Trace, played by Joan Hackett. Then we get bitchy, horny agent Christine played by Diane Cannon. We have director Philip, played by James Mason, as well as our celebrity actor couple slash agent, Alice, played by Raquel Welsh, and Anthony, played by Ian McShane. So 
they're all very excited in the way that they're like, oh, shit, I guess we're getting the gang back together. It's been a year since that broad died. Well, again, a bunch of clues already, too. Philip has a little girl in his lap while he's filming this fucking dog food commercial. Mm -hmm. I also love that Christine's assistant is clearly a lesbian. And then she just tells her assistant to disguise her voice as a woman <laughs> on the phone. <laughs> it's so rude. So rude. <laughs> I love when Raquel Welch and Ian McShane are at the airport and they like are first off hounded by the paparazzi, mm -hmm. but then they throw that guy with the champagne aside. It's just yep. so it's so on the nose, but also perfect. Yeah, it's so on the nose because we've seen it happen in real life and not so recently. Like we maybe saw this a couple of years ago. We maybe saw this last week. <laughs> So everyone arrives at the dock and the husbands and wives are separated so that Clinton can take a picture of the six hungry failures in front of the word Sheila. Ooh, but he makes sure to rearrange them in a very specific way. And it wasn't for outfits. <laughs> <laughs> So we then see this picture posted on Clinton's corkboard in close up so that you can just study it. But again, it's like, oh, we pause this nowadays. 1973, you've just got to squint real fast. So on top of the murder mystery, we have this game. And I love that because it's also it's a misdirect without actually being a misdirect. It's just, just like taking your attention away from everything else at hand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you really have to pay attention to how everyone interacts while they're playing the game, while trying to figure out whether or not the game itself is important for solving Sheila's murder. Well, what I love about the game is that on a boat full of terrible people, which we have reiterated multiple times, mm -hmm. he's the worst. I mean, oh, like, he's, he's terrible. the ultimate bitch. He is delighting in their suffering, and he knows their secrets. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he's made a game of it. That makes him kind of the, the nastiest of all. Well, and I mean, look, I know it's been a year, but he doesn't really seem to be that upset over Sheila's death. Frankly, he's having a great time. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, it seems like he's he wanted her to die so he could do this game. <laughs> or he just sees it as an opportunity to torment them because he's that kind of asshole. Because, yes, when he says that they're hungry failures, it's because they all need him quite badly because of the state of their respective careers but can you imagine just the amount of audacity to be like <laughs> all right i'm gonna create a game that's gonna expose all of your flaws but mm -hmm. we're also gonna romp around in europe i'm gonna dress in drag for a portion of it sure it's like what what, what are you doing what are <laughs> like what are you doing well and, and even like broadly i mean like, i love that you know we know we are walking into this and it's a murder mystery and we think we are trying to solve this murder of the movie mm -hmm. it, that's not even really the well again we've already said it's not really the point of the movie <laughs> but like again the whole first act is a bit of a misdirect anyway because it's not the murder we're trying to solve exactly I mean, at this stage, I think we're still trying to really understand the relationship between all of these people, mm -hmm. which is some of my favorite parts of whodunits. It's like, so who knows everyone and how and what things do we need to discover as an audience to better understand how the game will be played? Mm -hmm. So as everyone settles in, Christine confides in Tom and Lee that Clinton has basically invited them here because he wants to have everyone make a movie called The Last of Sheila, which will chronicle his wife's rise from call girl to columnist. So if you ever wondered how Clinton got some of the dish that he has, it's because his wife was collecting a bunch of this. The title of this movie 
this is a Sondheimism to me too, because it has multiple meanings, right? The mm-hmm. last of Sheila. Okay, she died. The last of Sheila. When I think Christine says, "When are we going to hear the last of Sheila?" Right. This movie, and then also when we get to the letters at the end of the movie, Tom mm-hmm. has the last of Sheila. <laughs> the letter. He's the last the letter. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's pretty smart. Yeah. So later, Clinton explains the rules of this game, which he calls the Sheila Green Memorial Gossip Game. She's <laughs> just like, okay, you bitch. <laughs> so here's how it will work. Each guest is given a card with an identity. And we don't learn at this point that the card that they're assigned is not actually their identity. So like when Raquel Welsh gets, I keep saying Welsh slash Welch. Anyway. Raquel Squelch. There we go. Wait, is there a drag queen named Raquel Felch? Because I just need to know. <laughs> I'm willing to bet there is. <laughs> oh, my. Wait, my, Michael, do you have a drag name? I do. It's Waffles Extravaganza, as gifted to me by Peaches Christ. I rarely use it. <laughs> uh, we explain how it happened in one of the episodes, but frankly, it's because we were at a diner in New York City at three in the morning, and a menu item was Waffles Extravaganza, and she's like, that's you. And that's wow. the story. Yeah. <laughs> Joe, have you picked one up for you yet? Uh, when I did drag, I had a name, but it only makes sense within the Ottawa drag community, and it would have only made sense about 20 years ago. So what for your Ottawa listeners, what was it? It was Tic Tac Tina. Oh, I like that. Part. Okay, I like that. Mine would have been Alicia Keybumps, and my mm-hmm. husband's name when he did drag was Barbie Koa. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Ari got the better one. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. <laughs> okay so yes these these various cards contain phrases such as you're an alcoholic you're the informer you're an ex-convict etc well we don't know any of this yet and we never see the alcoholic card (laughs) well no that's true (laughs) so each night what they will have to do is individually decipher a clue that will identify the identity of this corresponding person so it's like we're here for a week there's six of you by the end of the week we'll have discovered everyone's individual secrets and whose card aligns with who so the first game is the shoplifter so the clue is a sterling 18 carat silver key they're dropped ashore and we watch everybody kind of scramble around and who's making allegiances uh christine tries to partner with lee lee ditches her alice just goes drinking so basically the only ones who really decipher the clue are tom and then lee and then philip but lee doesn't count because she and her husband speak for too long but basically they end up in a room and discover that okay uh there's like a bunch of clues and the shoplifter is eventually revealed to be alice well and so that's the thing so hey first of all we have so much queerness behind the scenes of this film Mm -hmm. but christine has so many lesbian christine has to be a lesbian because she keeps having all these lesbian interactions (laughs) she goes into a (laughs) lesbian bar and she's like is anyone missing a truck or something (laughs) so offensive but i'm also a sucker so yeah alice like goes off and just starts um just drinking by herself because she Mm -hmm. knows the secrets about her and she's already put together like oh this is what we're doing clinton's fucking with all of us yes but i love that we not once not twice like three times we have mystery pov camera person Mm -hmm. as they're talking to raquel squelch you know i have to say i think that maybe the 70s this would have been way more scandalous but when i think about the array of other crimes here the fact that like her big secret is that she's a shoplifter i'm kind of like 
So what? She's so embarrassed yeah, she by it. She stole a fucking fur coat. And yes, fur coats are very expensive and they would have been a very big ticket item in 1973. But yeah, I fully agree with you. When she revealed that, I was like, oh, it's not millions of dollars worth of diamonds. Who fucking cares? Yeah. My, well, and also, even if it was, it's sort of like her character is sort of like fuck capitalism as opposed mm-hmm. to the murderer or, or, <laughs> or the, the molester. molester. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm kind of like, you know what? Let her have a second coat. I don't but, give a but, shit. But, but, that, but that could be the commentary, right? Like in the world of Hollywood, being a shoplifter could destroy your reput- reputation just as much as mm-hmm. being a child molester could or being an alcoholic or a murderer would. But actually, Trace, I think you're onto something because remember how many years like the mm, press and Winona. comedians harangued Winona Ryder. Yeah. And then it, it took for how long for Harvey Weinstein to be brought to justice. So, yep. well, I think it's also important that Alice is an actress and we do get confirmation from Philip eventually that she's actually a pretty good actress, but also she's still just an actress compared to someone like him who is a producer who is far more powerful. I'm pretty sure he uses the word semi-talented actress. All right, semi-talented <laughs> it is. Which maybe that's a, that's like a high praise from him. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just thinking that they wrote this part for her and then cast her and then gave this line to someone in the movie. <laughs> I mean, the, the bitchiness certainly jumps out. Well, there we go. So I will say this. So the drama with Raquel Welch on this movie... So there were complaints about her behavior on the set. I don't know who from. Um, but in turn, she announced that she was going to be suing the director, Herbert Ross, for assault and battery as a result Me. of an incident in her dressing room. She apparently had to flee to London during the shoot to escape physical harm, but she then returned to Nice to shoot the film's final scenes, and she was provided with a bodyguard for that. But Warner Brothers later issued a statement supporting Ross and criticizing Welch for her quote-unquote public utterances, And on top of that, James Mason told a newspaper at the time that Welch was the, quote-unquote, most selfish, ill-mannered, inconsiderate actress that I've ever had the displeasure of working with. Yeah, this all sounds very similar to how we have treated women actresses recently who have spoken out about various working conditions on sets and we say oh they're thankless bitches who are being difficult and ungrateful and it's like no apparently this is just what we do in hollywood on that note though i'm even surprised that welch decided to come back and do a commentary for this film given her experiences I wonder if she just really likes the movie and she's proud of the work. She is. She she uh, she's has an interview where she like listed three films that she thinks she's really good in, and this is one of them. I mean, Alice is a really interesting character, and Michael, I'd be interested to hear your perspective as someone who like directs and writes for actors. But like, this is not the role I would have thought. Like, I would have thought she'd be playing Christine, frankly, because she's like total sex pot very like mouthy and instead here she's almost demure yeah i think it's actually a brilliant casting choice because raquel welch at this time i think at at this point she had already made one million bc which was a hammer film that was really what solidified her as a pop culture icon and it was for exactly what you say joe she was a sex siren she was this sort of like prehistoric babe of the past Mm -hmm. and that kind of was furthered by her modeling career and and some of the other pictures that she did and i think that ensembles are safe places to cast people against type to show Mm, right that they are more than just their public persona and i as a director 
and someone who writes for actors, there's a joy in giving an actor an opportunity Mm. to play something that they don't normally get to play. Because we see this in horror all the time. Yeah. Yeah. The idea that it's like, okay, uh, and I'll, I'll use a final girl as an example. If someone was a final girl in an 80s action movie, say, at a summer camp, then for... Many, many other filmmakers, they're like, oh, well, I'll have her play the chef at a camp or she's going to be a counselor <laughs> because it's hearkening back. And I get that. And that's fun. And it's a great nod. But on the same token, I think of the actor and the actor already made the movie that created that famous. persona for them <laughs> yeah. that made them famous. They So you're not going to one up the famous movie. Mm-hmm. And for them, it's not really interesting to revisit territory beyond a job. We all like to work. We all like to make money. That's just a fact. But if you go to an actor and say, I know that you're known for X, but wouldn't it be interesting if you did Y? Mm -hmm. And if they are intrigued by the idea, that's exciting. And so for Raquel Welch, specifically at this time, sort of at the height of her in magazines as the sex siren, yeah, she's playing an actress who's supposed to be glamorous, but her character has these flaws and this... What's the word I'm looking for? She's almost like emotionally vulnerable, right? Yeah, she's vulnerable. That's exactly the word. And that's not what the public associated with Raquel Welch at the Mm. time. And so I think that for her, there was probably a great gift in being able to play someone that people didn't think of as immediately Raquel Welch and Mm -hmm. successfully do it. And she did. She's quite good in this film. Well, that's, I mean, yeah, because I've been on record as saying this before. I I love when actors specifically actresses are cast against type typically for me it's oh i want to see our disney starlet do more mature r-rated material so i think of like amanda seyfried moving from mean girls to chloe or jennifer's body or something like that but also i'm just a fan of when actors kind of send themselves up and i understand that raquel welch didn't know or maybe realize that she was sending herself up in this role but i appreciate that from her (laughs) Well, I think it would have been really easy to have just made her the shrill harpy of yes. an actress and be like, we're just having you do yourself. Whereas here, it's like, you're maybe doing yourself, but also you're maybe the most empathetic character in this entire movie. Well, and doesn't the movie actually speak to even in some ways the real life scenario that we talked about? Because the men on the ship are terrible to her. They treat her oh God, yeah. as if she is just an object or a commodity. You know, if they're mm-hmm. not sexually inter- interested in her, they're interested in what her brand brings to them. Right. And beyond that, she's worthless. And, and so the fact that there was also this behind the scenes drama with her and the director, as well as James Mason sort of giving that testimony, it's it's kind of fiction becoming fact or or the the sort of, nebulous place where it's all interconnected because it's true well but it's not even just the men though because even christine when we first talked when oh, we were first talking so about the slut shaming well she she even says like oh, she, they're talking about the movie she goes oh yeah uh what's her face i mean my new client and it's alice <laughs> but even like the alice's la- one of her final lines in the film is when she goes up to tom and she's like oh i just thought like i had this thought it was like if you get married again call me isn't that terrible and it's like it's almost a joke, but it's also kind of like her moment of self-reflection in a bit, in a way. That, I, I don't know. I, it's a really understated performance that I really, really like. I love that whole thing, like the reveal that Tom is the man that she was having the affair with. He's the POV shot that she talks through throughout the film. But I, I love this idea that, yeah, she realizes, you know what? I'm not a great person. And I don't know that that's a good thing, but also she's 
arguably the least bad person on this boat. <laughs> no, and even by asking, is that terrible? Right, like you something said, no one else is doing. She's the only one who like has a moment of attrition, I suppose. Yeah, I think she's fascinating as a character. I I almost just wish we had a bit more of her. Well, that's the thing, though, because at the 90-minute mark of this movie, everyone leaves. Basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, so thankfully we're not there yet. We still have all of our characters in play, but we, at this point, are getting other little mini clues. So we learn that Clinton has the rooms bugged. We see that Christine is fucking someone on board. We see her get into the shower with someone. And we also hear Lee talking about money as Tom eavesdrops. So we know that there's money issues within their house. Of course, we already kind of gathered that on their introduction because we know that Tom has not really been working much. Sounds like a motive to me, Joe. Hmm. And she's rich. What? <laughs> <laughs> So the next day, Anthony asks uh, for an associate producer credit on the new film, and he just gets laughed at, which is uncomfortable for everyone involved. Okay, but my favorite exchange in this movie, and it's probably the most obvious one, is the one between Alice and Christine. <laughs> mm -hmm. Alice is like, could you please rub some of this lotion on my back? Oh, I really love to, honey, but I'll, it'll throw off my schedule. I have to do 25 minutes on my front today. Oh, to make up for the 25 minutes you spent on your back last night? <laughs> <laughs> Christine doesn't give a shit. She's like, yeah. <laughs> yep. I mean, here's the thing. It, if this movie was remade nowadays, this yacht would be massive, right? It's a good size considering the size of this cast, but it's not <laughs> huge. Like they're kind of bumping into each other all the time. So when Christine is having loud sex, everybody is hearing it <laughs> your privilege is showing this yacht is a good size i guess it's a for good like size i mean i've definitely like been on bigger boats but i will to... say in joe's defense the spatial awareness of the yacht is part of the the plot they talk about mm -hmm. how close the rooms are how they have yep. not been given great rooms because of who they are and because the crew has some of the better quarters Mm -hmm. uh, it, they they make a point to say that the yacht's fine, which also really speaks to kind of their bitchiness. I actually think if you remake this, you give the, the crew a bigger part in this film. I mean, that would be one way to make it more palatable to audiences is you go the triangle of sadness route where it's like, oh, mm. the crew are observers of this ridiculous behavior. I love the crew all have like Sheila shirts, though. <laughs> uh -huh. <laughs> It's so bizarre. It, it's another symptom to me that Clinton did not actually care about his wife. No, he, I mean, literally, the reason she gets killed and leaves that party is because they're having a fight. I mean, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. a couples fight, everyone, obviously, sure. that happens. But that's all we know about that. <laughs> yeah, like, we know nothing of their marriage except for the fact that they were fighting. And he apparently liked, question mark, her enough to do this weekend of games or week of games. <laughs> But also he had, what, novelty tees made up for all the crew? It's very, like, 66 Batman villain when you think about it. Oh, my God, it is. Come to me, my Sheilas. Let's prepare the yacht. Shit on my face. Ugh. Okay. So Alice tries to apologize for Anthony's behavior, but Clinton doesn't really care. He goes snorkeling. And at this point, he and Christine are both nearly killed when the engines are mysteriously turned on. Oh, we get our POV shot of the quote-unquote killer going in to turn on the propellers <laughs> mm -hmm. um by the way though, this is terrifying like i don't know like I, 
like i get anxious anytime i'm near the back of a boat it is terrifying to me so this is just like nightmare fuel oh it's it's horrible yeah it reminds me of like when you go around the backside of a horse you're just like no no danger it's bad news i don't want to joe Joe, how often are you around horses (laughs) as often as i'm around yachts I think we're learning a lot about Joe's spare time. <laughs> now I understand why you're really into class critiques, Joe. <laughs> I'm not saying I have $5 million. Please don't kill me. <laughs> Rich guilt. Rich guilt. <laughs> there we go. Yes. Just look for my cameo on Gossip Girl coming up this season. <laughs> just keep talking. <laughs> oh my God. I'm just burying myself deeper and deeper, aren't I? <laughs> I think it's great. In fact, I think it's so great, I'm proposing that we host a party. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I don't trust either of you bitches after this. No, what, what, is, what, are the, what, what is the Kentucky Derby? It's, what's it called? Uh, like, uh, where they go and like watch horses race? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. but, no, but like, that's the name. What's it called? Like, what's the general name for a horse race? It's, it's a derby, right? Oh, it's a derby? Yeah. yeah. Take us to a derby. <laughs> God damn it, I fucked that up. <laughs> Just continue. <laughs> You know, I was in a derby when I visited my parents in Abu Dhabi. Oh my god, Abu Dhabi do? No, Trace, like Abu Dhabi the actual. No, place. oh my god, Joe. <laughs> Sex in the City 2, the movie, that horrible fucking thing. That's literally Miranda's like only line in the movie where she's like, Abu Dhabi do! <laughs> why would I know that? And frankly, why is Sex in the City 2 not a horror queer selection? Because <laughs> oh it's so boring. <laughs> <laughs> oh god there was that one podcast where they watched it every week every day year. Ugh. terrible moving on moving on okay so christine is properly traumatized which i appreciate it like somebody actually has a physical reaction to nearly dying because clinton seemingly doesn't care i love diane cannon's performance during this scene because mm-hmm. i think it's real easy to go rote where she could have been hysterical air quotes because i don't love that word Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the old cinema definition, right. but she right. alternates between stressed and laughter and like mm-hmm. calm because that's what happens when people are put in a circumstance. They act erratically and manically and she mm-hmm. performs it really, really well. That That's a character nuance that mm-hmm. I really, really appreciate because it feels very real for someone who just survived yes. something. Oh, and speaking of just women, um, d- would you all say that she is overweight in this movie no 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 she put on 30 pounds for this role jesus christ yeah and i'm assuming it's just to be like to emulate what this uh, the the, uh, what miss minger looks like but at the same time i'm like wait this is you at 30 so in this scene when she's before she gets sucked in the propeller she has this like chain belt around her waist and that was Mm -hmm. what she put on herself to say if it starts getting too tight, that's the limit of my weight for this role. But she put on that 30 pounds Ooh. specifically for this role. Yikes. I know. I was like, she looks good. <laughs> okay. So after all of this drama, we've got Philip and Tom going into full investigation mode. So this is kind of a precursor to what they're going to do for the rest of the movie. We have the director and the writer putting their heads together to try to decipher who could be behind this? What would their motive be if we were to write and direct this as a future movie? And then Tom throws his back out. So this prompts Clinton to more or less spill the beans as to when Tom will need to be able to perform his clue, which is at the end of the week, and also hints at the fact that Tom may have access to some pain medication. Remember all of this later. 
<laughs> I know you won't. <laughs> That's the good thing, right? A good mystery. It's like these innocuous things that you just don't think would be important, and the film doesn't shine a light on them. But then when you go back and watch it, you're like, oh, yeah, it's like right there, right in front of my fucking face. Oh, I, I fully was just like, why do I care if Tom's back hurts right now? What is this movie doing right now? Yeah. So our second clue is the homosexual card. And uh, this is the one that Alice has. So we go to a nearby island that is mostly abandoned. It's got a monastery on it. And this is when we talk about how it was basically populated by homosexual priests. So we find out that Lee is uncomfortable with homosexuality. She kind of frets about like, ooh, homosexuals, what would we do with them in our midst? What indeed, Lee. I love in this moment, by the way, that they refer to the island as something out of a Hammer horror film. Mm-hmm. Uh, be- because, of course, Raquel Welch was, yes, her fame came from a Hammer film, uh, as well as the woman who played Sheila was in a handful of Hammer films. Oh, shit. There we go. So we also learn at this point that Tom has a card that reads hit and run murderer. So we see that for ourselves when he gets into the shower, but we also see that someone else sees this card. Actually, that's the other thing, too. One thing this movie does really well is we always think that the POV camera is the same person. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's not. It rarely is. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so on the island, on this Hammer film-like monastery, which, P.S., great production value on whether or not... Well, I guess this would have been a natural island because they did film this in France. (laughs) So on this island monastery, they are told to take a vow of silence as they split up to look for Clinton. Philip discovers him dressed in drag as Alice in the confessional booth. And it's also revealed that the door for people to get in to do their confession is broken. So Clinton is fretting because things aren't going to plan. He's kind of upset. Philip is like, it's fine. Just take a chill pill. (laughs) Go have a child or something. Honestly, just (laughs) stop freaking out. So after Philip, Tom visits, and then we see Lee, and then Christine, who praises him for the game, and then finally Alice kind of makes her way over. In between Christine and Alice, we see that Clinton is very obviously dead. Well, Um, (laughs) and this this is the big thing, though, too, because Alice, so whoever the killer is, uh, throws out the the game is over card mm-hmm. but that's not supposed to happen until the person with the homosexual card clue gets to clinton and that would have been alice that's what she's like this isn't fair this is how you play the game <laughs> yeah so it's it's bad sportsmanship but it also suggests that something has gone wrong because clinton would have never played the game this way yeah, it's obvious he's dead right it's so obvious from yeah, the moment you see him. Yeah, exactly. So the next morning, everyone discovers that Clinton never came back. And when they search the island, they quickly discover his body. At this point, I was very glad that we didn't have a, oh, he's just missing. He'll pop up later on. Like, I was very happy that we just find his body so we can move the mystery forward. Do you actually think it would have been better if we wouldn't have been able to see his eyes in those confession booth scenes, because that's what gives it away, right? Like we just see his <laughs> clearly dead eyes staring off into space. I wonder, I just, I don't I don't know if I like to know that he's dead already. I don't know that it matters because mm. again, it's ultimately a misdirect, right? Like, right. Except in this case, the misdirect is for us, the audience, mm-hmm. because at this point we think that it still has to do with Sheila and it really doesn't. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah <it's laughs> no so one true. gives a shit about Sheila. <laughs> no one ever did. No, not really. So we sort of notice that the crime scene appears to have been staged. Like the murder weapon is this rock, but it's not at the right height. And Philip and Tom start to do some digging and realize that there's weird things that aren't adding up. So they find a cigarette in the confessional and it seems like the wrong end of the rock is covered in blood. Um, I'm sorry. Also, another good Alice soundbite. Uh, whenever they're lamenting Clinton's death, her line is, poor Clinton, such a shame. It would have been such a big grocer for him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, because this is a woman's picture that everyone is fighting over. And I don't know if it's because of Ross's direction, but again, it's a thing where it's like th that that is a really good joke. But it's 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 not like highlighted in a way to where I think a modern audience might just like it might go not go over their heads, but they might just overlook the joke and not realize it's a joke and just be like, okay. But it's really funny. I think it's very Altman-esque. Uh, yes. This idea that there are multiple conversations at once and you either catch yes. it or you don't. And it, it's a very specific style of filmmaking that unfortunately we don't really get in the modern era because – I think we now exist in a space where we are overstimulated and everything has to be put in front of us immediately yeah. or else, mm -hmm. you know, you might miss it and it may not be the memeable moment. So move on. Whereas this kind of invites you into a boat in the south of France and you're either right. in it or you're not. You're either paying attention or you're not. And someone may say something that you miss. And I think that's kind of what ultimately makes this great as well, is there are so many moments like that, that if you have only seen The Last of Sheila once, I guarantee you miss something that someone said. Oh, yeah. Because yes. everybody's fucking talking all the time. Yeah. But I wonder if that also then contributes to the lackluster gross for this movie, right? It's kind of the same as Clue, where there's so much happening that you're missing things and i think the filmmakers do it by design because they're thinking oh this is going to entice people to maybe come back to tell friends about it it's really complicated you've got to pay attention it's a wild ride and instead audiences look at it and say i had to pay attention too much and it wasn't obvious and it was really hard so and to, piggy to piggyback on what michael was saying though yeah it's like we're, we're a lot of people are used to a movie saying this is the joke this mm -hmm. is a joke i mean again they're not exactly. actually saying that but like through the editing or through how long the, the camera stays on a close-up like you, you're like oh effect. this is supposed to be funny this i mean again a lot of things in this movie but this particular line specifically that i'm talking about doesn't do that for you so yeah you have to be paying attention and be like aware of what is happening <laughs> i also think that maybe it was just timing that made this movie not perform well because the reality is is ensemble mystery stories are sort of a chestnut of storytelling we we love them but as you know trends come and go i mean mm -hmm. it's like i hear it in horror all the time it's like we're not doing slashers right now we're doing monsters right. or it's high concept horror and then someone will do something that brings it back around and if you look at the early 70s the idea of an ensemble cast driven movie where it was kind of coming off the tails of the studio system, that was on its way out. We're getting ready to enter the decade of the auteur era. So yeah. I think mm -hmm. people are more interested in films that are kind of singular voices. And this is a movie that is not singular voiced because it's an ensemble. So right. it, it's sort of the end of a chapter of Hollywood. We move into this whole other moment. 
And then these start becoming in vogue again. The idea that Knives Out is a huge success. I don't know that Knives Out, if it had been released even five years previous, would have done the way it did. Because it's sort of like we get listless and we start looking for... What's the thing? What's the thing? Or what used to be the thing that could be the thing again? Exactly. Because you're right, it is always cyclical. Every time somebody's like, oh my god, this is the most brazen thing, and you're like... No, we did this 10 years ago. We're just bringing it back. And something like The Last of Sheila or Clue, they've they've garnered cult acclaim and they've found their audiences and they've found people who love them because this kind of story in its way is timeless. The engagement with the kind of story is timeless, even if the time that it came out was not the right time. Right. But people will find it and it ultimately works and it endures. I think that if they were actually bad movies, we would have never talked about them again. Well, unless they were so bad that, you know, they were camp. <laughs> no, but I, I even think that there's a bit of a misnomer. And this is something that, like, I always go to the map for in terms of the idea of cult film. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I use John Waters as an example because people love to talk about the John Waters kind of style of acting that very affected. Like, well, my mother told me that blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And, and people like to say, oh, that acting's so bad, it's good. Incorrect. That acting is actually good because it's specific Mm. and it's memorable. Bad acting is not memorable. Bad storytelling is not memorable. If a creator or a story does something that has you return to it, there is something about it, although odd, maybe strange, maybe different than what you know, that draws you back. If something is truly not good, you never return to it because it doesn't engage you. I wonder if it's a conflation then of saying good acting is the same as authentic or realistic acting or performances. Maybe. And then I'm sure there's like someone who's going to like bust out their Sontag, you know, definition of camp or whatever. (laughs) Uh, And and that's, that's its own kind of conversation. But the reality is, is that art that's made in earnest, I suppose, or that, that, has something to connect to you'll always connect to it 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 just may not happen immediately i think that's the difference between the machine and of of hollywood and the execution of art is art is not it is both a product and not and the product side when you're looking at it from the business standpoint is like did it make money immediately this weekend no then it's a failure but that's not how art works and it's it's strange that like of course we conflated them because that's how humanity works but they, they really don't work in 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 concert because a movie that speaks to you or i may not speak to the masses but that doesn't negate its importance Mm. and the fact that it takes longer i mean and that's what shows like horror queers or midnight master about we're not talking about transformers because the people that are going to go see transformers are going to go see transformers (laughs) we're talking about things like mommy dearest or Psycho 2, like the audacity of making a sequel to Psycho. Well, mm-hmm. it fucking worked, though, it because does. we're still talking about it decades later. But you know what, though? But that's the funny thing, though, because I mean, I'm sure we talked about this in Psycho 2, but it's a thing where it's like, but if someone has not seen Psycho 2 and you mention it to them, they're going to they, they will still roll their eyes at you like, OK, but if they actually see it, it's like, no, it's, it's so good. 
<laughs> well, I think that's part of where our responsibility as critics, as curators, as podcasters comes in, right? Where we try to shine a light on something that people either haven't seen or they've written it off or it's been so long that maybe their thoughts have started to turn against it or on it. And mm. I don't know. I mean, I, I think that's one of the appeals of our respective shows. And, you know, Michael, you're so eloquent when you talk about just the the cult appeal, the camp appeal, the reason why people need to have different definitions of art and also how we track the quote-unquote success of art and how that doesn't always correlate to short-term gains. No, and it doesn't because the reality is, is like I know many, many people who are excited about the Academy Awards and there's nothing wrong with that. I too have been someone who gets excited about the Oscars. But the reality <laughs> is, is that... It's a limited form of how we appreciate film. Right. And and I think that the the pull towards cult cinema or cinema that speaks to something like The Last of Sheila or the work of John Waters in a different way is is an earnestness that draws us. I mean, there are many, many, many best picture winners that I have seen and then haven't really revisited or mm -hmm. talked about since. Right. But if you mention Showgirls, people, yeah. <laughs> a movie that was commercially reviled oh, and, and critically reviled, we're still talking about Showgirls with fervor all these years later. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I know people who have stronger opinions about Showgirls than the King's Speech. And that's... Oh, hello, that's me. Yes. That's, <laughs> right. But that's the point. It's like, Art endures. Business is temporary. Yeah. Well, and that's, I mean, ugh, I don't know if I'm going to get into this, but it's like a thing where, so, so Joe and I are new to the, uh, the, 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 the critics, like, groups. Associations. Thing, where, yeah. yeah, where we're getting the foyer consideration screeners. And it's something where it's like in the span of two weeks, you will get mailed 50 plus movies. And it's a thing where I'm like, oh my God, I have to watch these to vote and nominate. It's like, oh God, I now understand the Oscars and all these award shows are just nothing it means nothing because i don't think any of these people are actually watching all 50 plus fucking movies of this thing and giving actual thought to the artistic value of any of them before they vote for them in the oscars oh i know they're not tell me the short list tell me which things are standing out oh the gotham's just revealed okay who who ended up winning okay cool i'll take note of that and, and, and... exactly and that is why and i mean no shade because honestly like I'm who has the time I mean, here's the thing. We are likely going to try to make our best effort. But yeah, yeah, it's it's a different form of art appreciation. And I'm again using quotations because, you know, Trace and I and Michael, I'm sure you probably heard this before. One of the things that we hear fairly frequently is, well, you're going to have to watch more than just the genre titles. Yes. And it's like. Oh, so you're telling me that something like The Last of Sheila would be out of contention because it's just a simple whodunit, even though it's written by two very talented queer men who are operating at the height of their powers with a star-studded cast, which has whip-smart wordplay, word and as we've frequently said, is incredibly complex to put together. Yeah, I mean, it's a big eye roll, though, because the reality is is that... I, you're right. I, I've heard this uh, as someone who has submitted films to festivals. Festivals that, if I listed them, they're festivals everybody knows, that I've had mm -hmm. festival programmers tell me, well, we don't really like horror. You are telling Oof. me you actually dismiss an entire genre, genre. Mm -hmm. which which is shocking to me, because it, it, it's, it's stuck in this idea of... Um, 
old thinking that specific things uh, have have a stain on them, if right. you will. But there's also that's where the show business side comes in. You can act high and mighty, but there is not a studio in this town that was not saved by a horror film. Oh God, so many M- multiple <laughs> times over. I mean, Universal's entire foundations are built on the money they made. From Universal New Monsters, yep. New Line, Paramount, it's uh, and, and and that's the thing. So when there's an elitism, the reality is is yeah, it sucks as a creator, it sucks as a critic, but time is always on our side. <sighs> that's lovely. One of the and I will not say what it is for whatever, but one of the film critics associations that I joined, they literally said to me when I joined, they said, "Oh, but do you watch other things like awards contenders and Oscar films because that's really our bread and butter." Now they didn't say you can't like we don't want horror, but that was very much the implication was, "Ooh, the films you cover aren't really going to they're not awards worthy." Yeah, it's not going to merit your inclusion in this organization. <laughs> and I was like, well, "And where do okay. they think the filmmakers who are making the award contenders started?" Yeah. Mm-hmm. I yeah. mean, I'll look at the Fablemans, for example. I mean, like first off, Spielberg's whole oeuvre is is rife with genre cinema. One of his first outings was shooting an episode of Night Gallery with Joan oh, Crawford. Yeah. He directed something evil for television. I mean, th- this is a man who began in horror. It the director yeah you know you know what i mean (laughs) yes yes (laughs) we're all getting worked up into a frenzy because it's just so fucking frustrating and and even now like how many times have we seen the stories and i promise we can move on after this but how many times have we seen news stories in the hollywood reporter and entertainment weekly in variety where they're saying you know horror is so hot right now and i'm just like where the fuck have you been (laughs) Like, when is horror not hot? The good thing is, though, I, mean, I feel like mainstream, well, I mean, sorry, mainstream, I feel like generally horror is has is in a place right now where it is getting mm-hmm. more respect than it has typically in decades past. We're still not where I want it to be. <laughs> right. But it seems like more people are taking it seriously than they have in the past. But we had to mask it for a long time for, oh, yeah. for public oh, sure. consumption, which is really interesting. And I don't begrudge those filmmakers or those production houses that did it because I get it. Like that's 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 it's part the of the business. Catch well, that's it. It's the catch twenty two of show business. It's that second word that we all kind of forget when we're on our high and mighty art high horse mm-hmm. is that it is show business and there is a business aspect and there are people who need to sell this movie so yes. it gets out there. And so Yes, it's frustrating when I go into a meeting and they're like, well, we're looking for really high concept right now. Or is it a thriller? Because we prefer (laughs) not to do horror. And 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 it's just like, or when people explain to me, they're like, well, I don't really think of that as a horror movie. And I'm like, really? What Nancy Myers movie are you watching where a doctor eats somebody? I'm just curious. So have you ever just asked them, well, what's the difference between thriller and horror? Can you please tell me what what is the difference? And I'll make it work to whatever the fuck you're talking about. (laughs) Oh, everyone's definition is different, though. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) <laughs> and I'll tell you, I've written television thrillers. I've written a number of television thrillers. And when I write them, I always write them as if I was writing a slasher film or a horror mm-hmm. movie. And then they just kind of, they, when they make the films, uh, they choose the amount of blood. But it's like, sure. you know, to me, it's horror because 
somebody has incurred upon my home in a way that is dangerous to me. <laughs> That's horrifying, you know? <laughs> oh, man. So many times people are like, why do you like erotic thrillers? I thought you were a horror person. I'm like, uh, everything about sex is dangerous in an erotic thriller. Basic Instinct is, is a, a horror, horror film. film. But, yeah. but, but, the, but that, that is where, I mean, again, so, you know, we have the word queer as the umbrella term for all things encompassing. That's just genre. Genre mm -hmm. is all encompassing with this thriller, horror, suspense. Like it's all the fucking mm -hmm. same thing. I, I think people just associate horror with gore, Slasher. maybe? Yeah, and that's it. That's it. it's a cultural idea that unfortunately has per pervaded pervaded? Yes. Pervaded. Uh, yep. uh it is it, and that's it. Like I think a, a handful of gore films probably like riled up Tipper Gore in the 80s and that's what they think about when mm -hmm. they think of the genre and so that is the label that's applied when in fact we know that horror is multifaceted. And if you are a connoisseur of the genre, you know that you know, Saw is not hereditary, is not mm -hmm. Hammer Horror, is not Cube. You know, it, well, Saw and Cube are a little close, but you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So speaking of things like horror, we do have a dead body to contend with yes, here in The Last yes. of Sheila. In drag. In drag. Oh, God. Oh, he was caught like that. Oh, my God. I didn't even think about that. Oh, it's the French, though. They don't care. Well, that's the funny thing, right? So we learned that the authorities won't be here for six to eight hours and no one is upset. Everybody's just kind of like, right. well, I guess we keep drinking and... <laughs> I mean, wouldn't you? Well, I would be drinking, it, it, yes. I was actually thinking about this, though, because, yeah, the way they are all just talking casually about what's happened, I'm kind of like, mm -hmm. well, how would I react in this situation? Maybe I would... I mean, I, I, would I be quote-unquote hysterical or would i be, just be like yeah well th this uh this happened i guess i guess it depends on how close you are to the person and in fact none of these people are that close none with this person I mean, I mean but also it's like what else are you gonna do i'm sorry if i'm in the south of france and like <laughs> and like and lady bunny is dead and i use her name because i think she would think it's funny but if like lady bunny is dead i'm like all right let's go drink until the police get here michael's like where's peaches we're gonna start a roast it's what she would have wanted <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the South of France roast of Lady Bunny. Oh, my God. Yeah, well, we don't want to pollute the South of France, so. Oh. <laughs> 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 So Tom gets back into detective mode. So he begins hypothesizing that the propeller was actually the first attempt on Clinton's life. And then he literally asks everyone to put their cards on the table. So I'm I'm going to start skipping over some of the granular pieces yeah. of the plot because at the end of the day, as we've said numerous times, the actual killer reveal is not that important, but it is fun to see how it all comes together. So Tom gets everybody to put them out and then he identifies himself as the homosexual so he and clinton once had an affair he tries to cushion it as though well clinton was grieving in the wake of sheila's death so they had a kind of dalliance okay it's weird though that he calls himself a homosexual because to me i'm like you still clearly well well, maybe no. lovely but is fucking alice so i'm like you're a bisexual he's right. bi or pan or whatever but he, all right so yeah i heard that because they say oh it's it, you were he was grieving blah 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 but it also i feel like they say something too where he's like oh it was before you and i talking to lee and i'm like but y'all were together mm -hmm. so i was actually led to believe that it was before well, even before. sheila died that they fucked okay. but nevertheless kind of surprised that a plot point like that is in a movie from 1973 
Absolutely. And it doesn't feel like a big deal. Like, one of the things that I do appreciate, all of these people are awful, and maybe that's why they don't really react, but no one seems to care about any of these secrets. Oh, you were in prison? Don't care. Oh, you molest children? Don't care. Oh, you're gay? Don't care. Well, the homosexual thing specifically, I I did read that, you know, all of these characters were based on people. And I Mm -hmm. read that the homosexual was intentionally based on Anthony Perkins himself. And I I think that that in of itself, I mean, other than the diabolical nature of this character, and and that's in line more with the narrative of the movie and everyone's evil. Well, it's also kind of the self-hating gay that Tony Perkins embodied. But I think that when you look at the landscape of Hollywood at the time, there were a lot of open secrets with regard to gay Um, that mm -hmm. they didn't care within the confines of the Hollywood zip code. Right. Just don't let it out. I mean, people knew about many queer people here Mm -hmm. in in Los Angeles during this time. But of course, you don't talk about it in the press. You don't reveal it. And so I think I I, kind of get it. It's like the idea of Rock Hudson being on the boat would not have caused Doris Day to bat an eye if he brought a man. But don't Mm -hmm. let the press find out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's an interesting point. So we move on and he proceeds to out Alice as the shoplifter. As we said, it's really not that big of a deal, but fine. Christine claims the informer card, so she explains that she spilled secrets to the House Un-American Activities Committee. Mm. Like, Jesus, maybe you... the worst thing. Yeah. No, like, not, not, not the murderer and the molester, but, like, in terms of, like, it's the, the list, it's, like, really it's bad. Yeah. But, yeah. But again, though, I mean, like, she, she's, like, the 70s Hedda Hopper, so it does make sense. It, and it's so funny, because in, in the commentary, Richard Benjamin's like, did uh did sue ever do that and can diane's like no no she, she this was made up for the movie <laughs> but can you imagine like they wrote this character based on sue and they're like sue we want you to play this character <laughs> and they and and they're just like but also you're gonna be a monster so wait 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 it, before we go any further we should just elaborate in case i mean people may know i was Stephen gonna Sondheim, say <laughs> but they definitely probably don't know the house on american activities committee this is basically a like, hey, it's a witch hunt. We're looking for communists and maybe gays. And people were encouraged to spill secrets. But the people who were effectively blacklisted didn't work in Hollywood publicly for decades. So, you know, like if you were found as gay, they assumed you were a communist. That's where yeah, that's right. where the much hated commie pinko fag mm-hmm. comes from. Yeah. Real, real bad time. It was very much like turn on your neighbors to protect yourself. Because if you if you were identified one way that you could save yourself, and this is the reason people call it a witch hunt, is because you had the opportunity to save yourself by naming other names. So they would say, give us a list of names and maybe we'll let you go. And then they would do the same thing with the next group of people in an effort to just apparently weed out communism from the U.S., which, ha ha. Y'all, I, I'm not, hey, look, here's the thing. I'm not a communist, but I've, I've <laughs> Are you sure? I, I'm not a You're socialist. You're on the list. No, <laughs> I'm not a socialist either, but I've, I've never, I've never understood that generation's like, Oh my, like, if you're a communist, you are like, like, this is going to happen. I've never understood what was so bad about those ideologies that makes people like do this to each other. No form of government out, out, that is constructed for the benefit of people, whether it be capitalism, communism, etc., 
seems all that bad. It's when power players get involved and, and things become convoluted. Mm-hmm. And so so it's kind of like, I don't know. There's no right answer here other than the fact that like maybe Diane Cannon shouldn't be informing on people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, folks, if you if you watched this and you were kind of like, oh, I don't know, that seems about on par with Shoplifter, it's not. It's not, it's no. quite it, a bit worse. It, it, she is ruining people's lives. Well, and, and it's interesting that they still try to give her some sort of saving grace where she seems apologetic to the point that she's been working with some of these people to get them new gigs or helping them under the table and that kind of stuff. But clearly, it's bad enough that if this got out, it would be devastating to her yep. career. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it was a thing where when people informed on others, uh, it... it if you recall, there have been Oscar ceremonies where people mm-hmm. were honored, air quotes, and then when there were people who would not clap for them because of the fact that they yep. ruined people's lives. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of the Oscars, bringing it back full circle. Oh, full circle. Well done. Well See, done. See, that, that needs to be a supercut in one of the Oscars. Like all the people who haven't clapped and who they weren't clapping for. <laughs> Name names. <laughs> Inform. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, whatever happens with that. <laughs> so Philip is the child molester. <laughs> yes, but uh, he doesn't pick the card. Anthony assigns it to him because Anthony says, "Well, I'm the ex-con," and really, that's because the only card that Tom has not revealed is the hit and run killer. So basically, everybody has chosen a card except Lee, and she then confirms, "Yes, she drunkenly." killed sheila in a hit and run the year before and then she had some elaborate but really not well put together plan to get herself out of it okay but this is okay so yeah she killed sheila but then also in this exact same fucking scene she quote unquote killed clinton (laughs) Mm -hmm. so joe were you underwhelmed on this viewing when you heard this or were you like well there's clearly more to it than this Oh, it definitely seemed like there was more to it, and not just because there's still about 40 minutes left in the runtime. <laughs> <laughs> when you see Lee have this kind of like tearful flashback where she confronts Clinton and she begs him not to go through with the game and the storm is pounding and you're just like, it feels like this should be a climax, but it's too underwhelming. Well, I guess too, because we also see Clinton's dead ass eyes in this scene, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I do think that this is where it's more of a problem. In the previous scene... When Philip and Tom were talking to him, you're like, oh, I think he's already dead. But that just excites the mystery of it. When you see it with Lee's flashback, you're just like, how does she not realize she's talking to a dead guy? She's so histrionic with this performance. Yeah, she is. Because she's like busting in the the church wall and then like he's falling out. and She's like, oh, God. And she smashes his head in with a rock. It's all real bad. Like she's a terrible killer my thing is mainly though that tom is in this booth with clinton's body (laughs) Mm -hmm. so she She doesn't doesn't see see tom in the booth (laughs) whenever clinton spills out (laughs) um well he's in the second booth because the confessional is like three in a row wait it's it's three i thought it was two with one divider no it's it's there there are like three little rooms Mm -hmm. oh shit i'm a terrible catholic Well, well, I think in this specific example, right, because uh, Clinton wanted people to go in the one, but it's been locked by the killer. Okay, oh, right. So he's in the middle booth. Okay. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. then people are going in on the other side and he's like, wait, you're on the wrong side. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know what? Ignore what I just said. <laughs> <laughs> 
God, Trace, it's like you didn't even watch the fucking movie. I only did Confession once, and it was my first reconciliation that you had to do when you were growing up Catholic, and then I never went back again. Wait, is that the one where, no, it's it's uh, confirmation where the bishop slaps you, right? Yes, that's confirmation. <laughs> no, reconciliation is just a fancy name for confession. Right, and if Philip does it, then he slaps you with his dick. <laughs> literally no one says well who did you molest because <laughs> they're just like all right i'll confess i was just kind of happy oh god no i can't even say it now uh, well i'm on the air i'll say it. i'm just happy that he wasn't a gay child molester because i felt like that could have been an easy way to do it terrible well but you also have a movie where it's the homosexual and the child molester who was the baddest people in this movie right, technically. yes <laughs> But it's written by gay men, so it's fine. <laughs> I, I don't think anyone gets absolved. Though. No. I think, no. you know, the evil of this movie is Hollywood. Yeah, there we go. That's the thing that I think is most interesting is like at the end of the day, and I know we're getting there because we're like going through the plot. But mm -hmm. at the end of the day, the whole of this film is about the fact that all of these terrible things happen. And, and the, the takeaway the characters have is. All right, well, here's how we're gonna make the movie. Right. How can we profit off of this? But I think that's also what's... Sorry, yes, th this is clearly a Hollywood satire. But I think when we, when we think of a Hollywood satire, a lot of times it's set in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. So I think that having it set on a yacht on the south of France is actually a really ingenious move because it kind of remo it removes that locale to where you have to keep reminding yourself, oh, right, it's Hollywood. It's Hollywood. Well, yeah, because even the film that has brought them all together is almost subsided by, oh, now we have to contend with murders. So it's easy to almost lose track of the fact that these people are all working within the business, except for the fact that Philip keeps saying, well, how would we stage this? And you're just like, Jesus Christ, Philip, we're not making a movie. One of your friends <laughs> purportedly died. That's all he's thinking about this entire fucking time. <laughs> oh, 100%, because his career is in trouble. He needs to work. <laughs> well, and I think that's why the Diane Cannon being an informant is so interesting because, you know, we, we had our jokes earlier about political alignment, but the reality mm -hmm. is, is I feel like Sondheim and Perkins are the ones who are saying the worst thing in this movie is capitalism, you know, right. because they're pointing out that all of these people's greed is the motivator of everything sure. that's happening. This is both an eat the rich movie but also a con condemning of of the culture that they come from. And what mm -hmm. it's particularly interesting because Anthony Perkins movie star since he was young and Stephen Sondheim like, you know, the doyen of Broadway, the calls coming from inside the house. They're <laughs> saying yes. this is literally, you know, they're biting the hand that feeds. Yeah. yeah. But I feel like you I mean, there's something I don't want to say, I mean, Trace, you said this is Ocean's 12, right? Like we went on vacation and filmed a movie in France. Mm -hmm. But to a certain extent, this is a bit of a like self-indulgent passion project, right? Yeah. Like, ooh, we paraded our friends around New York doing these fun little scavenger hunts and games. And then we decided to make a movie about it. Yeah, but what's interesting is the difference between Ocean's 12 and this. I mean, there are many differences because, <laughs> because this actually, at the end of the day, does make some sense. Um, wow. <laughs> but I appreciate, you know, that Clooney and company did, you know, do this whole like train murder mystery where they got to go to Europe and just like eat food and drink and have a good time. 
but it's ultimately the fluff of like how cool are George Clooney, Brad Pitt and, and company. Oh, yeah. It's a celebration of themselves as opposed to, oh, fuck, we're taking down the institution. of which Yeah. We and belong. that's you're right. That's the difference. It's like we go and make a movie and we're like, how cool are we versus let's go make a movie and fuck all of you. That's mm-hmm. <laughs> Wait, I'm sorry. And for anyone who has not seen Ocean's 12, the, con- the, con- the concept of this film is that they're trying to steal this fucking Faberge egg. And the reveal at the end of the film is that I want to say they stole it about 20 minutes into the movie. And then they were like, this is how we did it. Uh, Two Mm -hmm. hours ago. (laughs) So everything you have seen since then is just fuck all. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of like this movie. The murder doesn't matter. The Fabergé doesn't matter. But also we don't have to deal with Julia Roberts playing a bad version of herself. Oh my God. Okay, wait. I'm sorry. I actually do like Ocean's 12. But I, like, I do too. But, but but mostly because of that Julia Roberts shit. That is the oh, funniest because she's fucking having thing. fun. It's kind of genius. I mean... But she's lampooning herself. That's why it works. <laughs> you look just like Julia Roberts. <laughs> so stupid. So stupid. Okay, moving did on, moving on. Did, wait, I'm sorry. That was a film school watch for me, by the way. Oh, ew. Not even kidding. But but it was like a joke. Like, it was like, this is why this is was bad. Was Julia Roberts also your film professor? No. <laughs> she just rips off a wig. Surprise, bitches. It's me, Julia Roberts. I think it was a narrative and film course, and we were learning about MacGuffins. Oh. Maybe not the movie I would have picked, but okay. <laughs> I mean, our teacher said this is a bad movie, but it was just like one of those things where it was really funny. <laughs> That's your teacher like sucking up to try to get better end of year surveys. Like, oh, well, I showed the kids a fun movie. Why aren't they grading me better? <laughs> I mean, we got to see some fun movies, but yeah, Ocean's, uh, that was one where I was like, this is just a weird pick for your college course on film narrative. <laughs> I mean, honestly, not to Perkins it up, but Psycho's a better MacGuffin movie than I was Ocean 12. Say. Yeah. <laughs> Because there's like an actual MacGuffin in that movie. <laughs> I was going to say, I think there's a Hitchcock or two that maybe better fits the bill. I think in Ocean's 12, the entire movie is just a MacGuffin. <laughs> yeah, it's called We Went on Vacation and Happened to Make a Movie. That's the MacGuffin. <laughs> you idiots, we lured you out to the theater. You gave us money for this. Oh, man. Everyone's going to go watch Ocean's 12 instead of Last of Sheila. <laughs> Uh, okay, so we have seen Lee tearfully kill Clinton. Oh, shit, she's the killer, blah, blah, blah. So she goes to her room so that she can get drunk because she's now fallen off the wagon. And Philip is not convinced there's something that isn't quite sitting with him. So he does happen to notice that a bottle of booze gets thrown out the window. And then when he goes to check on Lee, her room is empty. And a quick search reveals that she has died by suicide in Clinton's bathroom. I mean, we do get like an extended experience of James Mason just like creeping around. He's like, now I will investigate this mm-hmm. room. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, the audience is like, oh, why are we following this child molester around this boat? <laughs> no one wants to comment about. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So so basically she's dead. And then we just cut to the next morning. So we don't even know if they picked up Clinton's body because they're very clearly taking away Lee's body. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, they really just did not care about this producer at all. It could have been Clinton, though, in that wig. True. It's true. (laughs) It was Clinton wearing Julia Roberts' wig, and then she took it off, and it was actually Lee the whole time. Yes. (laughs) Fuck. Okay, so as we're watching the body get taken away, this is when Alice confirms that the POV secret boyfriend she has been entertaining this whole time is actually Tom, hence bisexual or pansexual. 
And that night, Philip and Tom kind of revisit and work through all of the secrets. So something about the cigarettes, something about the ice pick being missing. And then this is when Philip zeroes in on, hey, remember the picture from the beginning of the movie? It's really important because we also have Clinton's choice words. You don't have to move to play the game if you're smart enough. (laughs) So basically what's revealed is that Clinton had put everyone under a very specific letter under the spelling of Sheila on the yacht that corresponds to a word on the card. And this is when we realized that Tom's card hit and run killer does not begin with an A, which means he actually had a different card. Oh, wait, remember, he crumbled up his card, which means this is a second card that he has fabricated. I love, I love that Tom's undoing is that he's not a good puzzle person or a game person. Mm. <laughs> and then, yeah, honestly, the, the, the crumpled card, it, it's, it, it's, if you watch it, it's like, oh, it's so fucking obvious. Except mm-hmm. it's not because you're like, who cares? I'm crumpling a card up and remembering about that. Yeah, my thing was I definitely was not keeping track of the ice pick. So when he's just kind of jabbing at the at the ice with, I want to say it looks like a potato masher, but it's like, oh, OK, yeah, I guess that was missing. And then you see in the flashback because we're getting flashbacks to all of these things. Right. Yeah. He fully just like pocketed it and walked away. Joe, your privilege is showing again. What he was using, what you're calling a potato masher, is actually like a big uh, a bottle opener that, that bartenders use. <laughs> ah. Yes. Yeah, mashed potatoes is for the rich. Folks. <laughs> yes. It's also not what well, a potato masher looks like. <laughs> only the rich have time to mash their potatoes. It's an indulgence, you see, because we can casually crush them. Look, I'm just saying I enjoy a meal of mashed potatoes before I ride my horse to my yacht. Wait, can, can y'all tell me, why is, an, why is an ice pick, even in the 70s, a quote-unquote classic woman's weapon? Because you have a glass of bubbly and then you kill. <laughs> I've never used an ice pick in my life. Well, it's funny because to me, it retroactively makes sense because of basic instinct. But then I'm like, oh, wait, basic instinct is 19 years after this Yeah. <laughs> So it's always been a thing. Apparently people just knew when they made an ice pick, oh yeah, women will like this. Well, it's probably because the the shitty thing about it is it has to do with kitchen maintenance. The idea Mm, that, mm -hmm. you know, back in the day- Oh, who makes a drink? Who makes the drink? Who who packs the ice box? Like, you know, an ice pick is now thought of as sort of like a fancy affectation, but back in the day, it was more of a real, like a- a, An actual tool. (laughs) Yeah, a utilitarian tool, because the ice would be in a big block. So they, you know, the woman was probably in the kitchen chipping away at the ice pick. Husband comes in, blah, 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 fuck you, dead, he deserved it. End of end of story. Well, I guess because I always, I mean, I always heard, I'm sorry, but what the, the phrase I've heard is that poison is a woman's weapon. Oh, sure. But never an ice pick. I've never heard an ice pick is a woman's weapon, but nevertheless. Hmm. Oh, interesting. Now we know ice picks are for ladies. Uh, but yeah, we get this super cut. Uh, but actually, what I do like, so yes, we, we, you were right, Joe, what you said. We get this basically 20, 25 minute long exposition dump. But it's also told because because Philip doesn't know all of this from the get-go. He kind of figures this out as we go along, and we mm-hmm. get those flashbacks. And normally, normally, I would not like these flashbacks because this is the movie treating its audience like it's stupid. It's like, hey, remember this thing from earlier in the movie? It's important. Mm-hmm. But this plays more like, oh, no, Philip is remembering this in real time, and we are just looking at his thought process. 
Well, I think also it is so complex yeah. that it's not <laughs> as simple as, oh, did you pay attention to the cigarette? That's the key to breaking it all open. It's the cigarette, the ice pick, the cards, the pitcher, the bottle, the booze. I love the whole, like, because, you know, with the, the, he's, I actually thought it was James Coburn's voice that they just ADR'd over his corpse in that confession booth, because I completely mm-hmm. forgot that Tom, uh, uh, oh my god, but, uh, Richard Benjamin does a James Coburn impression that's spot on earlier yes. in the film. Yeah, definitely forgot about that one as well. Well, and we're, we're definitely getting the end of mystery exposition from mm-hmm. the sleuth, and it makes sense that is james mason because at the time of this movie coming out james mason was the most famous person in the film he has been in so many movies he has that great speaking voice Mm -hmm. this this feels very very by design and holy shit because i mentioned james mason's uh filmography it just occurs to me of course he's the child molester because he is the star of lolita directed by stanley kubrick oh okay Uh, that makes sense that is literally a commentary on the person playing the character that is genius See, I've seen this movie many, many times, and it just occurred to me while I'm talking very fast, as if I am expositing my own end of mystery moment. Hang on. Just let me check the door to see if it's locked, because I need to get out of here. (laughs) And it was Joe with the mashed potato device all along. Classic woman's weapon, that mashed potato masher. It's true. I've secretly been in drag the whole recording. (laughs) It wasn't a secret. (laughs) How dare you? My talk isn't meaty. (laughs) Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. Okay. So basically, we learned that Tom is actually the one who killed Clinton. He used the ice pick in the confessional. And then Lee believed that she had killed Clinton. So that's why she staged it to make it look like an accident. So then Tom was like, Jesus Christ, the labor woman. Now I've got to restage this to make it look like a proper murder. So I can convince you that you are a killer and everybody's going to find out so that you will look like you have died by suicide, but secretly I've actually drugged Drugged you you. and then killed you myself. And he did it all for five million dollars. Which is immediately going to leave his pocket to fund this movie. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So my favorite thing is that we do get a kerfuffle, a skirmish between these two men. It's with puppets because... uh, (laughs) We didn't bring gloves to the south of France, so the only thing that can protect Tom's hands when he tries to strangle Philip is Anthony's puppets. Oh, which I love, though, because so when he because he goes to get something in his room and he's like, ah, and he's literally looking for the puppets. So he's Mm -hmm. going he's planning on killing Philip immediately. Yes. But then gives him enough time to explain everything. (laughs) Mm hmm. Oh, the dramatics. It's kind of ham-fisted metaphor here, too, because everybody was a puppet in this movie. Yes. Right. (laughs) So, I mean, as as genius as Sondheim and Perkins were with the script, they they had their moment where they're like, and now this. Well, it also feels like so much pageantry, right? Like yes. We're, we're really putting on a show to the point that we're literally introducing a quick little puppet scene. Exactly. Yeah. So it seems like it could be lights out for Philip because Tom is younger and better with his hands. And then all of a sudden, Christine comes in. Hey, everybody, Christine's still in this movie. She's been off fucking Guido. And remember how Clinton had the entire boat rigged for sound? Well, it turns out that they put on some mood music and instead heard all of this confessional. Which also, d- she she's like, yeah, so um, we're going to make a movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. Doesn't even care. 
doesn't care. Nobody even really blinks. I love the fact that nobody is making a desperate bid for a gun or another weapon, which is what I think we would get in a more conventional film nowadays. Here it's just like, everyone knows we're on a level playing field. Everyone's cards are still metaphorically on the table. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we're going to use this money that's coming Tom's way to make this movie. Everybody's going to get what they want. Except for maybe Tom, because he'll only get to do the rewrite. Oh my god! Okay, that that to me—that's <laughs> like fuck you. One last you get time. the rewrites. <laughs> I mean, I think it's great. I think it's such an indictment of the kind of people they are. It is mm-hmm. an indictment of the film industry from within the film industry because you know you know that Perkins and Sondheim have dealt with these kinds of people. And of course, mm-hmm. it's ratcheted up to 11 for the sake of the film. Oh, but it's sure. it's just sort of the like anything for the movie attitude, no matter what. And that this movie is that to the foregone conclusion. I think it's I think it's wild. And I also love that the movie, The Last of Sheila, this movie is named for a film we've never seen. It's like the Monster mm-hmm. Mash. It's a song that we've never heard. It's genius. Well, I thought the funniest thing was, oh, so was this meant to be that we're watching the movie that they then made? No, because I think it was supposed to be more about Sheila. Right. Yes. Oh, that's true. Yeah, because it, it was an ode or a memoir of Sheila's life. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, her rise from call from it was her rise from call girl to columnist. Exactly. Oh, <laughs> so bad. Also, that's a woman's picture that people are going to want to see. Okay, sure. And and then yeah, so the the final image of this movie is we just zoom in on Tom, completely defeated, mm-hmm. as Bette Midler's jovial jaunt friends, friends. just plays over this. <laughs> oh, you gotta have friends. Yeah, it's hilarious and so apropos for what this movie is doing. Uh, it, so... And it was the first soundtrack contribution of Bette Midler. Yep. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. We have unfortunately recently talked about in our Hocus Pocus 2 episode as not the best person, but... Well, she's been overshadowed already by, um... Oh, God, who who just said something anti-trans? Jesus. <laughs> Draw a name out of a hat. <laughs> no, someone someone just said something. Oh, uh, Helena Bonham Carter defending J.K. Rowling. <sighs> but both played witches. There you go. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so that, that is The Last of Sheila, everyone. Uh, Joe and Michael, what's well, so Michael first. Final thoughts on The Last of Sheila. I think that this is a brilliantly constructed mystery. I, You know, I've been singing his praises all throughout. I love that Sondheim and Perkins took what was essentially a parlor game for they and their friends and turned mm-hmm. it into a, a motion picture. Not only a motion picture, uh, but a motion picture that basically was a scathing indictment of motion pictures. <laughs> yes. And I think that there's something lovely about that i know lovely is not the word that people would go to immediately but it's just sort of like (laughs) these are people who inherently knew what they were talking about because this is a truly inside baseball movie and it's sort of that moment where perkins has been working for many many years at this point sondheim is is very much part of the system as well and and that frustration is is very visceral here and it's mm-hmm. also very acerbic and i i love that and it's very them i don't i i think that sometimes when you have two strong artists collaborate it can be tricky 
Or you can see what it would look like if they had a kid. And this is what a kid <laughs> that, that would have been had by Stephen Sondheim and Anthony Perkins would have looked like. And even though for both of them, it was an only child. Perfect. Aww. They did try to do two more collaborations and unfortunately never saw their way through. But um, yeah, this this is just one of those like... like it's a lightning in a bottle yes. kind of thing, right? Yep, that's exactly the phrase I was looking for. <laughs> uh, Joe, what are, what about you? Have, have your thoughts changed at all throughout this conversation, or are you still in the same wavelength? So I ended up really liking this. Having only gotten the chance to see it the one time mm -hmm. before the recording, I do feel like I'm coming to this with very insufficient eyes. I definitely think that this is a movie that has endless rewatchability because even both of you at various points have said oh i just realized this thing yeah. like i <laughs> hadn't caught that before so i think by design this movie is eligible for endless rewatches you know little like pause and take a look and see if you can catch something new and that makes it fun but also to me at the end of the day this is just a really fucking queer text. Like, it's so bitchy. It's campy in the right ways. The performances are pitched at just the right frequency. And I kind of love that there's so much queerness behind the scenes, but also in front of the scenes. And I love that we're not afraid to just play with problematic bad people. Because you're right, Michael, we don't see that much anymore. And it feels refreshing, which is a weird thing to say about a movie about it killer homosexual and a maybe killer child molester but at the end of the day I, I just think it's a lot of fun like i really really enjoyed it joe i think it's so i i feel like if we went and listen to our podcast episodes from two three years ago i i know there was a time where both of us were coming down really hard like it, we, we were falling victim to the depiction equals endorsement oh, right. sometimes yeah. and so i think we've come around i honestly think like, I, I i like seeing i like seeing fuck fuckle fuckles <laughs> i like seeing fucking terrible people and just watching them and I, I i think i i wasn't feeling that way about two years ago and now i was like oh, i'm craving i'm craving just watching despicable people so this movie was a breath of fresh air and michael i, I really appreciate you putting this on our radar all those years ago and that mm -hmm. we finally finally got to cover it this year <laughs> yeah with you I'm just honored that you asked me to come and party. It's as if, you know, it was always destined that we three would be here on this boat in the south of France. <laughs> and yes, and Joe, to side with you as, as well, uh, yeah, it's, watch this, I'm like, oh, wow, 1973, we're putting all this queer shit in a movie. And mm -hmm. I'm just really, really happy it exists. And I hope, listeners, that if you have not seen this movie, please go seek it out. Um, it's great. So. Yeah. All right. Well. Before we announce the recovery next week, uh, Michael, first, again, thank you again. But let everyone know, where can they find you and uh, whatever work you want to put out there on social media? Uh, you can find me at Michael Verratti on Twitter and Instagram. Those are the best places. Uh, as you mentioned at the top of the show, I recently co-wrote Christmas With You starring Freddie Prince Jr. and Amy Garcia, which is on hmm. Netflix right now. As well as I was involved in this season of Dragula Titans, you can see me on one of the episodes doing some wrestling announcement, which, yes, I, that was a surprise to me as well. <laughs> and I have a couple other things coming soon, but I, I'm not allowed to talk about them yet, other than the fact that Wednesdays at midnight, midnight mass, me and Peaches Christ will be talking about cult films for you to discover or rediscover and worship. Yes. Go. go listen to that because yeah, those are there's some great, great, great underrated movie picks on there. 
But if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at HorrorQueers or shoot us an email at HorrorQueers at gmail.com. Find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered and go to our YouTube channel to watch us talk to people. Um, <laughs> Conversation. Uh, wanna, yeah. I, th- th- that's my best selling point. Uh, but if you want to chat with other listeners, please join our Facebook Horror Queers group. Uh, if you have a moment, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you want even more content, please support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. We are still in 2022, but we're almost at the end, but still to come. Well, still to come. So if you go to our Patreon this month, we have episodes on Terrifier 2, Christmas Bloody Christmas, Bones and All, Glass Onion, and an audio commentary on Scream 2 in honor of its 25th anniversary. Oh, shit. We also have a special bonus episode on Patreon this month over uh, Into the Dark, New Year, New You. This is the Sophia to Call entry in that franchise. Mm-hmm. Which maybe plays into our final release of the year trace next week oh yeah um what um what what is that joe i don't know (laughs) (laughs) wow your best surprise voice is hilariously unconvincing (laughs) so we're gonna wrap up 2022 with a little new year's themed main feed episode And we're going to stick with Into the Dark. So we're going to open up the Patreon vault and we're going to talk about Michael, your friend, Erlinger, his entry, which is Midnight Kiss. Yes. Very, 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 very queer in case you have not seen that yet. Yeah. Can't wait to see how the bloody commenters tell us that that's not gay. Oh, my God. (laughs) Great bottle death in that movie, though. There we go. Uh, But yes, until uh, New Year's, everyone, uh, we can cross out the last of Sheila. Indeed. And cross out horror queers. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out. And we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now. 